previously on Grunt Work. Home Improvement's Patricia Richardson sizzles as Virginia mother Laurel Vega, whose fractious child custody battle with her ex-husband, Senator Jack Vega, takes an unexpected turn when Jack's new wife Melanie is murdered. So whenever we come across a new character, I'm going to read how Steve Martini describes them in the book. I've seen her outside the courtroom in a red satin halter top stretched tight as a drum at the bodice. Melanie Vega is not a big woman, except in the upper region. If money is the mother's milk of politics, Jack has nurse's lips to a purple hue. Why is it all about boobs? We've got this kind of saxophony score. That's how you know it's a uh, legal thriller. <laughs> this is where we get these scenes peppered in throughout the movie of him talking to his daughter. Daddy, Nietzsche said that God is dead. Do you think that God is dead? <laughs> Oh, that's pretty good. Music. <laughs> Melanie was five months pregnant, and the state is now asking for the death penalty. Daddy, Belinda Carlisle once said that <laughs> heaven is a place on earth. Could I get your position on that statement? <laughs> is he's yes. enlisting the help of Gene Smart, Mrs. FBI. This whole movie is dudes getting into and out of cars. <laughs> I'm just saying, then he's sponge-worthy. So, let's say <laughs> orgasm as many times as we can on this podcast. That's what the listeners make. really want to hear. <laughs> Can't get these the, these couple out of my head. You remember, you were there too. They were called the Merlots. Daddy, how can a just God allow for evil in the world? He is accosted by three ruffians. Three rude dudes who are copping massive tunes. The Merlots. Have I mentioned the Merlots to you? There's something about them. They just disappear. What's going on with them, man? Remember Marcy? Yes. Wait, Marcy, he doesn't remember Marcy until he realizes, oh, who works at the post office? I'm Jerry Seinfeld. She works at the post office, George. And then a random dude comes in and hands Mrs. Merlot's friend a package. In the infamous words of the rock band Saliva, tick, tick, boom. I was told Patricia Richardson would be in this movie. I've been sold a false bill of goods. Welcome back, listeners, to part two of our very special bonus episode on Undue Influence, starring uh, Brian Dennehy and Patricia Richardson, based on the Steve Martini novel Undue Influence, which came out in 1994. This TV movie came out in 1996. We are on part two after an explosive finale in part one. Truman, are you I... excited to uh, find out the exciting conclusion of this story? I, you know what? When I sat down to watch part two of Undue Influence, I was actually, yes, somewhat excited to find out how it all ended. And I have to say, I was not expecting it to get as bonkers as it got. This okay. was a okay. really unexpected twist. I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying I liked it or anything, but <laughs> man... Man, did we take some did we take some twists and turns in this here legal thriller? Yeah, it goes to some places, uh, and it's interesting to me. Well, we'll get into the personal reflections in a second. Let me give a little synopsis of uh, exactly yes. what happens, or, or briefly what happens in the, the second yes. part, so that people can kind of keep this in their minds as we go into our deep dive. Um, yeah. We left off with a massive explosion <laughs> at the post office. <laughs> Just the bombing of a federal building in the 90s. That was happening all the time. Uh, our main character, Paul Madriani, realizes that there be, might be more to the Merlots, uh, a seemingly innocuous 
uh, couple uh, of neighbors um, to the Vegas on the night of Melanie's murder than he first expected. Uh, with his only lead being a postcard from Jamaica, Paul takes a trip with his FBI boo, Dana Colby, <laughs> to find <laughs> to find uh, Kathy Merlo and hopefully get the answers he needs to get Laurel off the hook for murder. In court, Paul uses the information he has to shape the story that Laurel could not and did not kill Melanie, in spite of all the incriminating evidence, DNA tests, and more. Will Patricia Richardson grasp for a last gasp as she gets gassed? Find out on the thrilling conclusion of A New Influence. That was some beautiful alliteration there. I think... (laughs) Will she grasp for a last gasp to avoid getting gassed in the last part of? Yeah, I don't know. No, I, you know, I'm not gonna try and I'm not gonna try and top your 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 intro. I think it was very good. Um, yeah, this was uh, this this was a, I, I it was it was a, I I don't know if I don't know if I just don't know a lot about courtroom procedure or if this was just one <laughs> nutty courthouse. A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Yeah, I would. Um, I, I I would agree. There were this this def- I feel like both columns were certainly represented in terms yeah, of uh, I, in terms of what what was up to here. There are definitely uh, things that I don't I don't know Steve Martini's background. I know a lot of these mystery and legal writers used to be lawyers in previous lives. Uh, I don't know if Steve Martini did, but I would say there's a good amount of like no judge would ever do that. <laughs> I, I found that I feel like the judge's legal strategy here is well what what's going to be convenient for the plot I will I will I will yeah. have a problem with things when it is not good for the plot and I will to- I will let the the I will let this lawyer completely browbeat and traumatize a witness right in front of me if it seems like it's taking the story to a good place I'll and so that ties in neatly to my personal reflections here which is this movie ends about as haphazardly as the book does and it feels <laughs> wow. like sometimes these mystery novels that if they're not handled by like experts like agatha christie who like made her life uh about mystery <laughs> you yeah. end up with like a whole mess of loose ends that are wrapped up in very contrived ways and yes. in this case it feels like those loose ends are wrapped up uh in a way that make me question maybe the moral fortitude of some of the characters but uh um, <laughs> yes but the, you know the I, movie i think really tries hard to put a sentimental frosting on the cake that hopes that you won't notice or care <laughs> You 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 cut into the cake and you cut through the sentimental frosting and then black shit oozes out <laughs> from from the spongy interior of the yeah. cake. I it definitely I I when I was in high school and was a far more literate person than I am now, I read a lot of detective novels mm-hmm. like uh the the Spencer novels by uh Robert uh, uh Robert B Parker yeah. or like the Elvis Cole novels by Robert Kreis and the, yeah, and these were like just there were like thirty books in the series. You know, it's basically yeah. Sweet Valley High for like middle aged men. But I well, and would and there's there's a difference though. I just want to point out which you might yeah. be getting to of the detective novel versus the lawyer as a detective novel, where the detective, you know, doesn't have to defend these in a court of law under you yeah. know stipulations and rules and stuff like that and precedent and you know, evidence, like, they just have to find the killer. 
<laughs> yes, <laughs> or find yes. you know find the missing person. So there's a an added level, uh, an added layer to these legal thrillers where it's like. Not only is Paul Madriani going above and beyond what would ever be expected of him as a lawyer, he is then becoming a detective in the courtroom, in <laughs> which is like, that's yeah. not your job. As a lawyer, yeah. you don't have to prove who did it. You just have to prove that your client didn't. I mean, this is the he Paul Paul Madriani, the full time lawyer, is doing a bunch of private investigator shit in this yeah. movie, like getting shot at the kind of stuff that the private investigators in these books would do. I the the only the the thing that I would just say, like the reason that the end of this kind of hit home for me is that having read a lot of from time to time questionable or at least <laughs> uneven detective fiction, yeah. I am very accustomed those are the most to. Fun. Oh, yes, certainly. But I'm very accustomed to, in the last five pages, kind of like, oh, hey, you remember, like, like two months ago when we had that conversation? Well, actually, there was a listening device that I planted in your apartment, and so the <laughs> DA has the record of that. And then also, I took the crystal goblet, and I got fingerprints off it, which proves that that guy is actually the bad guy, so your name has been yeah. cleared. Like, there, just, it, uh, you, you get the sense that, like, yeah. the thing had to be at the, the publisher, you know, at... at 3 p.m. and yep. he's just like going through his notes like okay what did I put in here oh fuck uh, tie that off tie that off and it this feels like a real festival of that in yes. the last couple minutes as does the book uh I, I had a hard time um in the last couple chapters of the book particularly after well we'll, we'll get to I don't want to spoil the deep dive but after the courtroom proceedings all of the action Woof. that takes place in the like Woof. epilogue I'm like what what the fuck is happening uh I, as I was like you know settling down you know my my brain to go oh, okay now we're like he's going to ease us into what these characters are going to do for the rest of their lives and then all of a sudden it takes like a mid book you know turn where it's just like why is this happening yes. with 20 pages left I, I yes, be, especially when and and having not read the book, but just watching the the movie, a lot of stuff happens in the last like ten minutes yeah. where it's like, wow, there was so much boring shit in the first half of this. Why didn't you? <laughs> why didn't you space this out, man? That wouldn't have made it better necessarily, but it would have just at least yeah. been a little more entertaining of a ride. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. Um, uh, I have two more notes, which is yes. One, give me give me your notes. I think Patricia Richardson. Is there, there were moments in this when she appeared on screen, said one line, and I couldn't help but giggle to myself at the torment that it brought you. Um, yes, <laughs> yes. I, I think I have a little bit of a sadistic streak in me, and I don't, uh, I don't know how to feel about that. Um, this is your your jigsaw, basically. I'm, yeah. I'm strapped to the chair. You come in on a trike. Do you want to play a game? <laughs> Do you want to watch Patricia Richardson a little bit in a really long, boring movie? But she'll be there like once every 15 minutes. There was there there were a handful of moments that Patricia Richardson swung for the fences and really connected and then yeah. the movie didn't give it its due. It it gave it its undue. <laughs> yeah. Uh it like there's well we'll get to it uh as, as I said in the deep dive but like she has a moment that is so expertly played. But then it like it cuts right smack in the middle of the height of her performance, and I'm like, "What the fuck is mm -hmm. going on? Why would you cut that off?" Um, and I realize <laughs> this is an HBO material, but like, come on. Yeah, it's a, it's that celebrated made-for-TV movie editing process, you know, the yeah. the cut to commercial right in the middle of the uh, the big moment. My other note is um, inspired by 
this movie, uh, which we're recording the second half a week later than the first half. Um, I, in the intermediate week, uh, went on a little bit of a, uh, a binge on D- Brian Dennehy. I, I went, a, I went on a Brian Dennis spree <laughs> and I, good for, good for you. And I'll tell you what I think prepped me for the second half is, um, I watch a number of his other TV movies. <laughs> Landon, you are you are you are putting so much more effort into this and thought into this well, than a than I am than, not, B, than anyone else has. Not true, uh, because I I found the the trick. These TV movies came on in the middle of the day, and I put it on. So I put on uh, to catch a killer, which is mm-hmm. Brian Dennehy as John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> in a two-part Wait, he's, movie, he's he's Gacy. He's the bad guy. He's oh, yes, shit. and he's fantastic in it. But you okay. know how I know that because I looked at the screen for maybe a minute every ten minutes because I put it on yeah. in the background. When I have to imagine, a lot of these were like you put them on in the background while you're ironing and doing laundry, and you come back and the, you know you see <laughs> what's you know you're keeping up very briefly with the the. The investigation, you know, kind of where the cops are at, and you, you know, like they they play that out for a long period of time, and it's very redundant because mm-hmm. they're not meant to be paid attention to like a cinematic masterpiece. I well, I did notice certainly in this that there are a whole lot of scenes where the characters discuss and recap the thing that they yes. learned in the previous scene. So if that plays out in the other made-for-TV movies, I can see that being a hallmark of the genre. I think it is. I think it is. And I, <laughs> when I watched them that way, as opposed to what we do on this podcast, which is watch it intently <laughs> and take – I have a short story's worth of notes for this movie. I, so I, uh, I, I think they're not meant to be looked at like this. Again, oh, so that's really that is the the truest hallmark of what we do on the podcast, uh, which is a, an entire show in and of itself. What we do on the podcast, but that's a hallmark of what we do here is we just analyze shit that was never designed to yes. be analyzed this heavily. We are just—it's like people who buy consumer products and purposefully try to break them by doing shit that they were never intended <laughs> exactly to be exactly. done. Uh, yeah. I do I, on some level the absurdity of what we do does feel like David Letterman throwing watermelons off a rooftop. <laughs> Every every time we record, we're basically putting on a suit made out of Alka-Seltzer and (laughs) jumping into a big tank full of water. Uh, And I really hope our audience is into weird bits that Letterman did in the 80s, because otherwise these jokes won't land. Um, Well, Landon, I I still, I really appreciate you, um, I appreciate you putting in the time to watch all of all of this made for tv content because when i was when i was watching it i was just thinking to myself i can't believe that this used to be the like primetime content or even if it was middle th- i can't believe this used to be a thing that like you know, probably probably more people watched this than watched the state of the union this year or something <laughs> like that more people watched Oscars, this yeah. than watched the f- yeah or or well okay well, i mean more i think more people like I don't know. I think more people watched the web series I made in college than watched the Oscars <laughs> this year. But like, I, you know, I don't know. More more people watched this than watched like the finale of Breaking Bad, probably because it was in the nineties. Yeah. I just, it's um, that's. But it is. Did, it's a lost genre and it's a lost uh, format. And I I kind of lament that a little bit. I think they serve a purpose. Like, I think it brought back some nostalgia for me. Of like, I would have watched something like this on TV with my grandparents in the middle of the day 
on a summer day while my parents were at work. You know, when I was like nine or ten, yeah. and it would have. I, I, ho- I hope you, I hope you wouldn't have watched the last five minutes of it with your grandparents on a summer day. They would have had a lot to you know explain <laughs> I, I, to you about. I, I watched the Andrew Dice Clay. Uh, um, uh, what's the, oh god, uh, Knuckle Smasher? What's the name of that movie? I can't remember. Uh, oh, I mean, don't ask me about Andrew Dice Brain, Clay. Brain That's Smasher. Those... Brain Smasher. Brain I watched oh, Brain, yeah. Smasher oh, Brain Smasher with my, with my grandmother. So, um, oh, there, you oh. know, it was it was a thing. Anyway, um, let's get into the deep dive of this thing. Well, oh, I, I, okay, before we get into the deep dive, just to postpone it one more second. Yeah, I do love that that. For you now, a Brian Dennehy made-for-TV movie is kind of the same thing as a baseball game. It's something you put on in the background to listen to to kind of vaguely distract you from whatever you're currently doing. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I listen Dennehy to baseball games dreams. actively, sir. Oh, you listen actively to baseball games. Okay, that's good. I'm sorry, I miss, I misunderstood you. you I do like, background you sit- activities secondary to the baseball game. I like to picture you when it's time for a. a Brewers, Brewers, yes. What is we are number Brewers? one as of as of the recording today. We are number one oh, in the God. National League. We beat the Dodgers in. Uh, we we didn't sweep the series, but we won the series against them. And they were I'm, the former number one National League um, number oneers. I, I I just hearing sports content on this podcast from you being spoken in a genuine fashion just really shocks. <laughs> it's like what what has changed. <laughs> But I, I just I, I just picturing you in the apartment, you know, you turn on turn on the radio to the Brewers game and then it's not you doing dishes, it's just you sitting next to the radio with your hand on your chin, your eyes closed, it's just intently like nodding and listening, the crack of the off. bat. Uh it's it's more leaning back in my chair with my arms crossed, staring out the window with uh with my headphones on, but same thing. <laughs> You you know what, Landon? You we someone needs to assign you a wife and two kids to like <laughs> ignore, sit, but like, but yeah, ba- yeah, basically to be like, no, Daddy's in his office listening to the Brewers game. We can't bother him right now. This is his special <laughs> time. Like you, you you know, that's the only thing missing is a family being neglected so you can sit there quietly and listen to the listen to a baseball game. Yeah. Well, anyway, oh, let's get to this thing. Yes, to undo, to influence. Part two of undo influence. Uh, Unto influence. That's much better than mine. (laughs) A little more concise. Uh, Okay. Yes. We left off with the explosion at the post office, and we pick up with papers flying everywhere. Media has already arrived on the scene. There are multiple reporters uh, talking about what the hell has just happened. Uh, Says that 12 people are already dead. Um, that's how do they know? Is the bomber one of the reporters? I don't. I mean, paramedics are still bringing people out of the <laughs> the the office. How do they know? I mean, people are bloody. I mean, the media. I gotta admit, is very relentless here. I mean, they are stopping yeah. firefighters in the middle of their duty <laughs> to go and yeah. and uh, you know get the answers. Yeah, th- this this th- this uh, episode takes a decidedly anti-media turn, I suppose. They're like the yes. the press is very gullible and very aggressively so. Yeah, yeah, but this is but there, this but is there's, straight up. There's one line by a, a firefighter who's coming out of the building that I just love. Where he's like, "Get the hell out of here!" Yeah, <laughs> it was it was so much like central casting that I couldn't couldn't uh, couldn't pass it up. 
it, it was very much, like, the whole thing has just, like, big 9-11 vibes of, like, all of these, like, dazed, soot-faced first responders yeah. and, like, people, well, this is, people this stumbling is 96. out of the building. I think it's more Oklahoma City. Oklahoma Well, that's the other thing that I was thinking about, not to immediately go into this, but, like, th- yeah, this this is really fresh. Like, the bo- a bombing yeah. of a federal building. Yeah. Like, this is ripped from the headline shit, and... It kind of then gets cast away so Brian Dennehy can start plowing Gene Smart. And it's just interesting to me that, like, the kind of the backdrop of this yeah. entire legal thriller is there was a terrorist attack in our small Virginia town. Like, a, the town is traumatized and will be for decades after the fact. Well, when was uh, Oklahoma City bombing was... Uh, 95. 95. The book was written before then. Yes, but the movie was made after then, right? I mean, the, that, <laughs> yes, that's, it was. They, so they made the choice to put this on TV. But I don't know. I well, as we'll learn, I don't know that you could get through. Well, yeah, you could have. You could have written this a slightly different to go. Yeah, maybe last year's bombing. We don't want to put that in this movie. Let's not make it a post office. Let's make it. You know, she's a bank worker, and let's not make it a bomb. Yeah. Let's just make it. You know, a hitman comes in. Yeah, or poison gas or something, you know. Yeah, uh, right. Sharks with laser beams on their heads. I'm just saying, they, like, <laughs> after 9-11, they quit playing the song Burnin' For You yeah. by Blue Oyster Cult simply because the word burning was in it. I yeah. feel like if there was that level of sensitivity, they would not have made this movie. And yet they did. Yep. <clears throat> People were hardier in the 90s. Um, Paul emerges from the, the rubble, singed, <laughs> but seemingly fine, a little dazed. He his he, his suit is torn and disheveled in the way that a person who has been near an explosion yeah. in a movie's suit always is. His his collar, like just one half of his collar, is pointed upwards. His tie's uh, a little looser. He's got some smut on his face. Yeah, yeah. And like, and a, a fireman tries to help him, and he's like, "No, there's people in there who are actually injured." So immediately, it's like, <laughs> "Yeah, but you could have a concussion. Selfless. You could have any number of head injuries, <laughs> internal you, you bleeding, ha- lasting mental trauma. Like yeah. maybe just let the guy do his job." <laughs> but instead, I, I love this. I so I'm thinking like, okay, so then we're gonna crossfade from this to like two weeks later, and everybody just just kind of knows about the bombing. Nope. We nope. follow Brian Dennehy as he stumbles, presumably walks back to his office, yep. and pours himself a tall glass of scotch to deal with the bombing he just lived through. Yeah, and the secretary, to her uh, credit, she go who we didn't see in the first one. I, I, the no. fact that they had a secretary was like, where is he? What? Oh, okay. Like, it threw me through a loop for a second. And then uh, she's like, she calls down Harry, uh, his partner, uh, or the person that shares the building with him. And yeah. This is where I got a little confused. I realized some confusion I had in the first part where apparently their law offices are in a house. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. I mean, the thing is, I feel like I've seen in the town that I grew up in. There were a couple of like old houses close to downtown that had a law office sign outside. So Mm. I feel like that's a thing that happens where a couple of weird lawyers move into a house and start doing law (laughs) out of it. But I, I haven't uh, had a use for a lawyer, so I can't, I can't speak to that, but here he comes down. Um, and he asks what happened. And, uh, as Paul tries to explain, uh, he comes out of his days a little bit and, you know, realizes that, Oh shit. It was Marcy. They killed Marcy with the package, and I handed it to her. 
I I do kind of love, like, the whole time that he was stumbling back and pouring himself a drink, I was thinking, like, oh, okay, so he's processing the fact that clearly this important, you know, witness just got killed. And then when he has this realization, I'm like, wait, so you just thought it was just a random bombing that you lived through. It's just, <laughs> you, you didn't, you, it took you until now to realize it was connected, which was the first <laughs> in many scenes where I was way, way ahead of Brian Dennehy yeah, in this little, movie. A little bit, yeah. But, you know, he's dazed from the, the bomb. His mind's not uh, not all there. Um, that, that that glass of brown liquor is going to help in a big way. <laughs> so he he knows that the bomb was meant for Marcy uh, and perhaps himself, but he doesn't know why. Why? Why was why? his bomb? Why? Uh, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to call. I'm going to call my boo, Dana Cole. Yes. from the FBI. <laughs> and, yeah, which is uh, always called Gene Smart. When in doubt, call Gene Smart. When uh, the paranoia starts to set in here, and on the phone with her, he's like, I want to meet you. He sets up a meeting place, and he goes, I want you to be there, and nobody else, just you, alone, in a dark alley. Yes. There's a lot of dark yes. alleys in this, surprisingly. Th- 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 yeah, this this movie is wall-to-wall dark alleys. Yeah. Um but yes, yeah, so she comes to meet him, and I thought that I thought that she was going to take for I thought this was going to lead us into another scene of like, oh, when you said you wanted to meet alone, I thought that you wanted to have sex with me because, <laughs> as you know, I'm very much in love with you. That's why I showed up wearing this trench coat. Look underneath it, just lingerie. I thought we were going to have sex. Like we're always one step away from a from a sitcom episode with with Gene Smart. Oh boy, and well, I, I just tell listeners. Keep that at the forefront of your mind because um, we're going to have a debate at the end of this episode. <laughs> at the end of this episode for what those intentions might mean. Um, but the meeting place was actually Paul's home. Yeah. Yeah. No one will suspect that. <laughs> and so no, one, in. no one that could be hunting Brian Dennehy uh, would think to look at his house for <laughs> for him. I mean, it's it's some reverse psychology shit. Like, the yeah. last place they'd think to look for you is the place that you live, right? Like, no one's going to yeah. be there. And um, I, okay, so one thing that happens here that I think is like, oh, that's kind of a smart touch, is he tells her the story of what happened, and he's like, I just wanted to let you know that my fingerprints were on the package. I wanted to get ahead of that. Yeah. I'm like, oh, well, that's, you know, most people just, like, take that to, to start running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously, yeah. I mean, and he I, does run. He does. He's like, I'm going to Jamaica. Uh, I'm I'm now the, the PI, and I'm going to go uh, hunt down this Kathy Merlo based on a postcard that I don't have an address from. Yeah, Heaven forbid like, someone got a, a postcard from Jamaica and then mailed it when they got back to the States uh, from Nebraska. <laughs> well, I mean, listen— it's not like you, you make it sound like it's just really easy to get a postcard with the name and picture of a location on it when you are in a different location. We all know there are numerous federal laws preventing you from selling postcards for other locations in a different yeah. location. Um, but was this what I what I found funny about this scene? He he's in there with Gene Smart and he's taught, you know, he's very distraught and he's talking about this woman at the post office who'd been helping him who was killed by the bomb and talking yeah. about you know this this girl meredith died because she was trying to help me and i can't <laughs> give this case up because i got her blood on my hands and he's like pacing around and he's so yeah. upset and he's going on and on about like how he has this burden because he handed the bomb to her and she died because of me and then he just like basically very dramatically facing towards the camera just goes i'm going to jamaica <laughs> <laughs> In other circumstances, it almost feels like a Frasier moment. 
Yeah, yeah. In, in another circumstance, this feels like a Carnival Cruise Lines ad. We're just like, Carnival Cruise. And then it's Brian Dennehy, like, paragliding or, like, surfing on one of the wave pools in the boat. Jamaica, when you need to forget about the person you bombed. Like... Yeah, it's is your life blowing up? Sandals, Jamaica. Um, I, I yeah, it, it's there was a it's moment. Just that, yeah, go ahead. That they that they picked is the the big important like hideaway is also this very popular vacation destination. It makes it hard for me to take the stakes of this seriously. Yes. I, and I gotta admit though, the scene Dana Colby, Dana Jean Smart says something here that really made me pause. Not in the sense of this movie but more in the sense of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, A a phrase that I heard that I've never quite, I haven't heard before, and like I hadn't really considered the concept of before, which was, she says, you have an overdeveloped sense of obligation. Mm. And like, as far as this movie goes, whatever, that's a throwaway line. But like, (laughs) in life, I've never considered that before. And it just it really stopped me in my tracks. I'm like, holy shit, that puts a lot of things in my own life in perspective. That a person can have an overdeveloped sense of obligation to something. Landon maybe is, if, is, if if that was the case, maybe I wouldn't have watched more TV movies starring Brian Dennehy. Landon, is the movie Undue Influence your therapist? Is like <laughs> I haven't been in therapy since I moved to Wisconsin, so uh, maybe I'm looking for therapy where there isn't any. Uh, I'm not going to deny that. Uh, maybe it's something I need to bring up with a new therapist at some point, but um, until the healthcare system gets fixed, I can't do that. Your your new therapist is the Tom Clancy's Netforce made for TV movie that they uh, <laughs> shot in the early two thousands. Uh, l- listen, man, uh, watching this is a lot cheaper than going to therapy. So That's if it true. works for you, it works for you. Um, <laughs> well, yes, but so Bri- Brian Dennehy does have an overdeveloped sense of obligation. <clears throat> yeah. um, I mean, that seems to be what has led him down. I mean, you know, he feels this obligation to Patricia Richardson, and that's led him down all these crazy paths. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so he packs his. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, no, you're right on the the money. He packs his bags, uh, specifically Hawaiian shirts, and yes. his daughter is insistent that he pack his swim trunks because he's going to Jamaica and there's beaches and oceans everywhere. <laughs> and I, in in the sixteenth scene we've seen of this, he asks her if she's been okay with what's been going on. Um, yeah. And she's like, yeah, I'm okay. I, I get it. I'm, I'm fine, Dad. Yeah. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. You know, she, she exp- you know, says, you know, well, Daddy, we all come into this world as pure beings, but then the accumulated detritus <laughs> of day-to-day life is what forms us into the people that we are, you know. But, uh, uh, yeah, so... Also, I noticed the nanny who was present in part one is not present here. So we really do just get the impression that he's oh, yeah. just like, yeah, there's some mac and cheese in the in the cupboard, honey. I'll be I'll be gone for like seven <laughs> to twenty five days. Yeah. Getting uh, getting shot at ha- having sex. <laughs> Spoiler alert, I guess. It's bizarre uh, 
just well, you know, she seems self-sufficient. His daughter at this point, she's really come into yes. her own as a as a seven-year-old, six-year-old. I don't even know how old she is. She seems like an old soul that has always lived. Um, they, they've all they, every, everybody has moved on from his dead wife. He's moved on. She's moved on. She doesn't need a mother anymore. He doesn't need a wife anymore. We're all good. <laughs> and I don't know. He also isn't very specific about asking her if she's been okay with everything that's going on. And I don't know if that includes the bombing or not. If she's just like, yeah, you know, uh, I'm okay with it. Life is fleeting. It's futile to cling to emotional ties. <laughs> um, everything's fine. Just, you know, you go live your life. And if you die, that's just the way things are meant to be. Yeah, you know, honestly, Daddy, in, you know, reflecting on the events at Ruby Ridge and Waco, the federal government has engaged in so much overreach and oppression of common citizens that I actually support people who would attack federal buildings. <laughs> not only not only do I have a very bleak Nietzschean outlook, I'm also kind of getting into an anti-government militia phase. This is just how I'm coping with mommy's death. Anyway, lots of beaches in Jamaica. Take your swim trunks, Daddy. I love you. <laughs> Then we cut to Jamaica. We don't even get the obligatory uh, stock footage of a plane lifting off and t- setting down. Um, we, we don't we don't get the red line going from Virginia across <laughs> no, down, to, down to Jamaica. Uh, but we do get the tarmac and a, a small plane as Paul and uh, uh, Dana depart. They uh, run into um, the FBI agent, uh, the cucked FBI guy. Yeah, from, from that, the previous episode. That's 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 all I got for you. I don't know his name either, but he's there. Brian Dennehy is upset because uh, Dennehy didn't want that guy there, but uh, uh, but Gene Smart insists that he's trustworthy, and so the three of them go off together. And also, he he like makes clear in this discussion with Gene Smart that basically the FBI is paying for this whole trip. Like she's declared him a confidential witness or something, and this is like a witness protection thing now. <laughs> Uh, which, you know, uh, spoiler alert, but, um, it, 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 it's surprising to me that at this point he's just not, that it's not dawning on him what the involvement of the FBI in this whole situation is. Like, you're, the FBI is going to pay for me doing a piece of work that isn't even included in my job to go look at somebody who wasn't involved in the murder just because I think on some weird obsession that she might have information. It's there. There are throughout my notes, just like Dennehy, how do you not see this? Why are you so dumb? (laughs) Like it is so hard for me to take seriously this notion of this man being an unparalleled legal genius when basic common sense is just missing him. Um, they're in the so, resort hotel room. Uh, you know, you know how, like you do when yeah. when you're on a secret investigation to Jamaica, you check into a nice resort. Uh, listen, the FBI is paying for it. I, you know, listen, I, they're they're splurging in ways that you know in 2021, none of this surprises me. <laughs> yeah, my okay, my just... tax dollars have paid for more golden plated toilets at this point. I, I, I'm just I'm just saying that this is all happening in the same year as Bill Clinton pledged to end welfare as we know it. So let's all just yeah. get let's all get angry for one second about oh. Brian Dennehy having a lovely lost weekend in Jamaica. Um so But yeah, yeah they're they're yeah. Here they they're telling her uh or Dana says, Okay, we did locate her, uh, but she's at a very distant location. She can't be reached normally, um, and she'd spot anyone coming a mile away. And well, she'd they spot Brian Dennehy coming a mile away right. because she a recognizes him and b Dennehy's white and it's Jamaica. I don't know how she thinks that he would 
she would recognize him. But um, it's not like they had more of an interaction than that one moment that night. And that in the story of Kathy Merlo, uh, if that is her real name, <laughs> Brian, uh, Paul Madriani factors not one iota into her story. So, like, <laughs> there, there's yeah, no reason she would give a shit if she saw him, let alone recognize him. Yeah, she's probably she's probably thinking more about what it is that she's fleeing and the people who genuinely want to kill her than yeah. the like kindly old lawyer she met for one minute outside of a senator's murder scene. Um, but, but so yeah, they they have this conversation at the resort. Su- it's basically yeah. She yeah. suggests why don't we send an FBI guy to head out there instead? Yeah. So so it's like she she lives in this incredibly rural village that's basically like nothing up there. She's been receiving mail there. Let's just send somebody up there to look for her. So then in the meantime, let's all just hang out in Jamaica. And it <laughs> literally is just, it just like goes from that straight is, into a montage of it, having it a good time. Such a whiplash. He goes, all right, well, then what do we do in the meantime? And she goes, well, you did bring your bathing suit. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and the dot, dot, dot starts uh, the dating montage music. And uh, we get Brian Dennehy and Gene Smart flirting uh, over dinner, a little bit of face sucking, and yep. uh, altogether too much face. Yes, sucking. yesing. Yep. Yeah, th- yeah. There, there is. You know, it's them, them holding hands on the beach, and then them like making out, and the just the. I was watching this on my laptop with headphones in, so maybe I was getting more audio than I was supposed to. But I was definitely like <laughs> hearing just Gene Smart like going like. Oh my, oh my, oh my, yes, I'm just here. This just is just not, not great. And again, th- this is like three minutes before this. <laughs> this woman died because of me. I cannot abandon yep. this holy quest. And it's like, it's, oh well, that's three Coladas. minutes. In, that's three, three minutes in movie time. They've had uh, days between that. I mean, they they shared a flight together. They shared uh, looking out over a fort, uh, you know, with a cannon together. Um, mm-hmm. They shared their bodies together. Well, not quite yet. Not yet. We, I mean, well, maybe. I don't know. They're, they're face-sucking on the beach, but right after they, they make out, they're walking up these steps, and he says, he kind of reflects on a time when he almost wrecked his marriage with a flirtation, and he doesn't know if, uh, if he can go through with this again. And I, <laughs> I love <laughs> Dana Colby's uh retort to this like she's so like just i'm throwing myself at you and i'm sick of dtf she really is dtf and she's like i'm sick of coaxing you she basically says here uh after he's like i don't know i almost ruined my marriage with a flirtation once and she basically says this is different your wife is dead (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) and i'm like you can't really refute that (laughs) I I mean uh, listen tough but fair Gene Smart tells it like it is every time I yeah it's very like again there's something so there's so such a distinct middle-aged man fantasy in this like yeah. you know you marry a woman and you have a daughter and you love her but then she dies so now you can have sex and then this lady's just throwing herself at, like, it's I don't know it's very much it is it, very it much is. wish fulfillment yeah um 
anyway, uh, Paul finishes a call with Sarah, uh, his daughter, and then says he'll meet uh, Dana in the lobby. I guess they're sharing a place, or maybe just for the night they're sharing a place. I don't know. But uh, mm-hmm. downstairs, uh, which is weird. He says he'll meet Dana in the lobby, and it is pitch black when he says that. And he walks yeah. downstairs, and it's bright daylight out. Um, he's watching passersby, uh, and says hi to a few people. And they're just like, what? <laughs> Uh, he's like standing there awkwardly, you know, white guy, da- you know, kind of dad vibes, uh, just like yes. nodding to people, and they're like, "What? <laughs> hello, hello, sir. Good morrow to you. Um, hello." He yes. follows. <laughs> he follows one inside, and this is where some of the like the the leaps in logic start to get really strained for me. I, I, Landon, I still don't get what happened here. So please enlighten me for how this scene plays out. <laughs> I will go beat by beat, but I can't promise it's going to make any more sense. He follows a stranger inside. There's no reason he needed to, like, he, he got curious about somebody, followed her inside. There's no reason that he needed to get curious about her. He follows her inside to where there's a gallery of paintings. He looks at these paintings on the wall, pulls out the postcard of Jamaica, stares at it, stares at a painting that look neither, neither of them look alike at all, and he pieces something in his mind together. He's like, hmm, he yes. Rea- he realizes, wait, I'm in Jamaica. <laughs> I mean, you're not far off. Like, that's about as much you can conclude from it as possible. Uh, I mean, yeah. It would be different if, like, the the postcard was hand-painted by Kathy Merlot and sent from Jamaica, and it matched the painting on the wall that he's looking at, and then he sees, oh, this is painted by Kathy Merlot, who paints these things by this place. Even that, as strained as it sounds, would be more than what we're given here, which is what I think we're supposed to take away is that he looks at this painting of an old church, and he says, by God— if she paints these, she could be painting the old church. I better go to this old church that she already painted to see if she's still there. <laughs> well, I, I feel like what this scene really is, is just after a few days of just hanging and banging with Gene Smart, he's like, you know what? I think I'm going to solve the case now. It's, it's, it's been fun, but I need to solve the case. It's like yes. the same, the same exactly energy it. of... Of me in the middle of my workday when I've been surfing Twitter for an hour be- and I've had an assignment to do. It's like, all right, I just get to work. I've had fun. <laughs> okay. Exactly. All right. That's so, 3 o'clock feeling. In Oh, God. I can't even put all this together. So with this strained logic of him getting this idea that he has to go find this secluded church, <laughs> he leaves yes. – Without waiting, bear in mind, Dana was going to meet him down in the lobby in ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, but he's he, like, he just he leaves. He just he decides to get up and go. He starts driving down these roads alone it, uh, in in the most discreet vehicle of all time, a bright red open topped <laughs> jeep. Yep, somebody's tailing him. That's important. And mm-hmm. as he's driving, he turns down a nondescript, unsigned road. Yes. <laughs> which takes him down a private drive to the church that was in the painting. And lo and behold, Kathy Merlot is there painting the church that she already painted. Because <laughs> you, you, you're not, you know, 
That's how it works. You paint one thing forever. You're, it, it's kind of the same logic of Amazon.com. It's like, oh, you bought a refrigerator recently? Let us serve you up ads for yes. fridges because clearly you're a person who loves to buy fridges. It's like you paint one painting of a church. Yep. You will just paint a thousand paintings of that same church. It, this movie was written by an AI. <laughs> and so Paul sees her and he starts walking towards her. He walks past her and she pays him no attention. And at this point, I'm like, is Kathy Merlo a ghost? <laughs> is this movie taking a strange direction? Uh, I, and also when we've been specifically told, no, you can't go looking for Kathy Merlo. She'll spot you a mile away. And instead, yeah. nope, does not recognize him. Uh, she's too immersed in her painting. And they only have a chance encounter when she coincidentally drops the paintbrush when he walks by. He picks it up and hands it to her. And she looks at him with death in her eyes as if, oh, my God, what are you doing here? This means my life is in danger. This lawyer who last time she met him had no involvement in her life, the case of the murder next to her house, nothing at all. So unless she's been following the newspapers and knew that he was on her trail uh, and was involved in the bombing in the United States, she would have no idea that this guy uh, has any meaning to her whatsoever. And he... And and also just, she's out here, middle of rural Jamaica, specifically trying to hide. He is looking for her. He doesn't notice him in the middle of rural Jamaica. There is a white lady in a big <laughs> sun hat painting. It, it isn't until he helps her pick up her. Like if she hadn't dropped her paintbrush and he'd helped her pick it up, he wouldn't have noticed her there yes. at all, which is maybe why you don't want a lawyer to also be doing private investigator <laughs> stuff. And in another movie, this would have been like where the ghost romance picks up. <laughs> yes. Like he can yeah. only visit her ghosts uh, at the church every, you know, <laughs> At 3 p.m. every day, and they can, ha- you know, have one moment together every day until he, he, uh, the end of time. He he comes he comes around. He puts his arms around her from behind and is helping her to paint the church <laughs> while uh, while a Righteous Brothers song plays. Oh God! He so Ghosts he rec- love arts. He recognizes her and doesn't like gently go into the situation like, "Hey, no. you're Kathy Merlo. I, I think you might be able to help me." He just immediately, very hostily launches into her going, you're Kathy Merlo. You th- you were there on the night of the murder. I think I saw you. You can help me. <laughs> he's, he's Brian Denning, all he... but like shaking her at the shoulders. And and he would have gotten there too were they not interrupted. Brian Dennehy in this movie has two speeds. There is basically, <laughs> uh, there's, there, it's walk and kill. Basically, yeah. it's either he's just talking to you normally, trying to be friendly, trying <clears throat> to tell you why mommy is in heaven watching you, or he is screaming at you to get what yes. he wants. Like th- those are the only two things he does. And so just to point out, I don't want to spoil the Kathy Merlo story yet, but she's got her own thing going on, and obviously it's different than what's going on with the Laurel situation. And so to her, this is just like a guy appearing right next to her and dropping Q conspiracies (laughs) at full blast. (laughs) Yeah. This is, you sit next to the wrong person on the bus and this happens to you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but she's like, I got to get the fuck out of here. This guy's insane. She bends over to pick up her stuff and a red dot appears on her painting. Uh, a red dot from where? Yes, that's right. The guy that was trailing Paul, was a hitman and conve- <laughs> the guy who was who was trailing Paul and who didn't notice Mrs. Merlot before Paul did. So both both 
Paul and then also the assassin both didn't realize it was Mrs. Merlot and, until the <laughs> same time. Right. Uh, a red dot shows up on the painting. Paul sees it uh, before it hits anyone. He, like, throws her into the ground to get her out of the way. Um, <clears throat> they run. He tells her, go for it. I'll keep the shooter busy. So she runs off down the hill. And look, okay. I have a lot of love for Brian Dennehy. I think he carries with him an emotional weight. We're by 1996, get, get ready for this butt. <laughs> by 1996, he also carries a, an actual weight. And yeah. watching him kind of scurry away hurriedly from shooting bullets, let's just say he's not an action hero. <laughs> I, I had a very hard time taking this assassin seriously, this person whose entire career is killing people who cannot hit Brian Dennehy once. <laughs> who, like, uh, you know, even when he's not running, is built like a house. So like, the fact like, that he stumbles a... away like a wheelbarrow with, you know, a, a broken axle is, uh, <laughs> it's hard to buy. There's a lot of Brian Dennehy, and and the bullets are just not hitting him. He he runs into the church. He hides in the church. This hitman comes in with his gun, is looking for Brian Dennehy, and then the priest comes out and starts talking to the assassin, and then Brian Dennehy runs out the door, and the assassin chases him out, and he's just, like, chugging down the hill, yeah. and the dude is shooting at him and not hit, and he gets in his car and drives away. Like, the assassin just misses him 10 billion times. He's, and he he's the even, worst assassin ever. It's not even, and it's not even like he's like, you know, there's cat and mouse inside the, the church where it's like, oh, but Brian Dennehy was hiding in underneath yeah. one of the pews. Or It's just, he goes in, he gets distracted for one second, Brian Dennehy was like behind the door and he runs out the other way. It is yeah. the most... Like, you know how in the in the later Star Wars movies, by which I mean, like, Return of the Jedi, how, like, suddenly every plan to defeat the Empire is like, hey, look over there, woo, and just, they like, <laughs> run, run past the stormtroopers? It's kind of that level. A little bit, like, yeah, yeah. Th th this, assassin is, this assassin is a stormtrooper in another life, I think. <laughs> uh, and they kind of look like they're on Alderaan, or, uh... uh uh, Endor right now, but um, I, I wanna I wanna just lament real quick, just real fast. Yes, the poor priest. I mean, oh. he he's the the most sympathetic person in this movie because he comes <clears> out. <throat> it looks like no one has visited this church in forever. He sees someone, this hitman. And he's like, oh my god, somebody's finally here, and they want to know about the history of this place. <laughs> And when the hitman realizes that Paul escapes, he just pushes the, the priest aside, given, like, right in mid-sentence of this cultural history. <laughs> I, I really wish that the, that the assassin was actually super polite, like Barry or something. So even though he sees Mad Randy running away, he's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, well, I really need to, uh-huh, well, no, I actually can't, uh, oh, okay, no, you want to tell, talk about the historical society. Oh, I can't make a donation, uh, fine, okay. And I would be remiss if I didn't do my duty here and say oh, that no. the shot when the the um, the priest comes out of the back room, he, he emerges, yes. and on the door frame next to him is a yes. calendar. God we damn. go to the resort. Paul gets back. <laughs> What I thought—I'm sorry—I had to walk away from the mic for a second. I thought—I thought you were going to go into a character actor corner about this priest. I was not expecting calendars. God damn it! <laughs> we we go back to the resort uh, where Dana's there with the uh, the cucked FBI man, and um, 
they're looking okay he dana like is like doesn't miss a beat like like this whole scene this whole ordeal happened um without her realizing it like he wasn't gone for two hours like oh i was just supposed to meet you there in the lobby where have you been you know oh i was just looking at a gallery like you went you know presumably on an island nothing is right next door you have to go like 30 miles you know 30 minutes out of your way there and back get shot you know all that stuff he's been gone at least two hours and and also the the it goes from like him narrowly escaping death like brian dennehy has almost been murdered on multiple like in multiple occasions in the course of this like five minute adventure yeah he you know, the, the thought of my daughter just lost her mom. She will now lose her dad, too. I will be ki-. like the, and and then we cut back to him at the resort and he's just like, oh, hey, I was just out uh, looking at a gallery. And it's like, you're, you dude, you were a white collar professional. You're not a cop. You're not a soldier. You yeah. were, you almost died. <laughs> you're just like, oh, yeah, no, totally smooth. This happens to me all the time. And well, they, they teach you getting shot at by Jamaican assassins class in law school. <laughs> To Dana's credit, she doesn't buy it, and he admits it, and says, but he he does lie. He he admits that he he went, but he lies and says that he didn't find Kathy. Uh, But guess what? The FBI did, apparently. Uh, oh, good news. There's definitely not another another piece of information that will turn this into bad news, right? <laughs> not at all. So Dana's like, well, you didn't find Kathy, but we did, and womp womp, how's your stomach? Uh, they go to a murder scene. And mm-hmm. um, the the cucked FBI guy kind of takes him through this uh, blood spattered house, uh, handprints <laughs> on the wall, and okay, look, we're gonna spoiler alert. The, the FBI. This is a, a, a murder scene that's been set up by the FBI. Uh, we'll get yes. to the reason why later on, but the Merlots aren't dead, and uh, yeah. this is all set up by the FBI. And I just want to say that to point out the level of detail the FBI has gone to to set up a ruse for a lawyer who shouldn't be here in the first place rather than just saying this is a government matter you cannot do this you are a private citizen out of your country (laughs) just you aren't allowed here don't do it you can't come also legally the fbi isn't allowed to operate in other countries anyway (laughs) so it's not like it's like there's jamaican cops all over so it's like presumably the fbi has also enlisted the jamaican law enforcement in this in this ruse well you know i'm not gonna put it past the fbi to have some sort of you know uh what's the word i'm looking for uh Quick pro quo with them. Um, no, look, look, Landon. The government always follows the law to the letter. <laughs> the FBI isn't allowed to operate outside the country. They're not going to operate outside the country. The FBI, who we can always trust. Um, My note here yeah. is lots of blood, blood everywhere, but no bodies. And uh, yeah. the the cucked FBI guy says uh, they'll probably wash up in a day or so. I don't know. You want a toke? Uh, and he like hands. <laughs> It's <laughs> just like uh, trying to, to wash this whole thing away, hands him this cigarette. And outside, Jean Smart is just waiting. She's standing like a queen. She's just kind of like she, hands on her hips. She, she looks like fucking Betty Davis in, I don't know, some sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, classic Hollywood film. Just hands she, on her hips, staring staring to the horizon, uh, waiting for you know the melodrama to come her way. 
she, she's standing like a queen because she is a queen. She is Jean Smart, Queen Jean. <laughs> um, also, when you, when he, when the cucked FBI guy says you want a toke, for one second I was like, they are in Jamaica. Is Paul Dennehy gonna have a real good time? Paul Dennehy, Brian Dennehy, Paul Mandriani, uh, Brian um, Hennedy, Hennedy, Brian Hennedy, Brian, Brian Hennessy. It's very smooth. VSOP. He does toke in To Catch a Killer, the John Wayne Gacy movie. Uh, just yeah. putting that out there. Anyway. <clears throat> well, um, wait. So there, you know what? Okay. So wait. John John Wayne Gacy. I'm sorry. If John Wayne Gacy was smoking loads of weed, I can't see him having the wherewithal to then kill a whole bunch of people. Like, how, how are you that mellow? And then also, this is another this is another matter entirely. It is, it is another matter. We got a lot to cover here. So let's just keep going. Uh, that's all we have for Jamaica. We we cut back to uh, where does this take place? <laughs> it, t- it it takes place in Virginia, and Virginia. I only know that because I saw a Virginia flag a in one plate. scene. In the first I saw one. a license yeah. plate at once. Yeah, so yeah. we cut back to uh, the prison in Virginia, yes. where Laurel comes jarring. out. Very jarring. It's like, oh yeah, Patricia Richardson's in this. It's not just a sexy travelogue. I I have to imagine there was a commercial break there. Um, Yes. We come back and Paul's like, uh, um, uh, just hear me out. Uh, Because he's been to Jamaica. He wants to tell her what he's found out. And this is the first scene that made me laugh out loud. Purely at your, picturing your reaction. Because Patricia Richardson walks out in her blue jumpsuit. Paul's like, hear Mm. me out. And then it's like a five-second scene, and it cuts yep. away before Patricia Richardson even speaks a word. And I'm like, "Yep, oh, my God, Truman's having a great time right now. I was having a great time. And then even worse, the very next thing is them in court. And this is kind yep. of the moment that I remembered, like, oh, this isn't just like a weird Magnum P.I. type show. This is a courtroom <laughs> drama. There's going to be a lot of this. Yep. Like, we, we go from this high of, like, terrorist attacks and Brian Dennehy's sexy adventure in Jamaica <laughs> to, and court filings. Yep, and uh, in the courtroom, Paul's back on the case after the precariousness uh, in the previous episode. And uh, all to Carla, the, the prosecutor's chagrin. Um, Laurel's there as well. Um, she's very demure, uh, quiet, sitting there between Paul and Harry. And, um, they all discuss the rug. Paul is putting in a protest to the judge. This is, this isn't the actual trial yet. This is all pre-trial, pre-trial. uh, figuring out the, the confines of the trial. In fact, Paul is, uh, uh, putting a protest on this rug saying he's afraid of inferences that are going to be made. Uh, he doesn't have any protest for it to be entered into evidence, but he is afraid of the inferences that the prosecution's going to make about uh, the circular logic that Laurel took the rug to wash away bloodstains that they didn't see, so he's afraid that they're going to introduce bloodstains along with the rug as evidence that she was washing away something they can't prove was actually there. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, sort of, yes. All I would say to the people at home is, in case you forgot, uh, when Laurel was arrested in the first episode, she had with her a bath mat from her ex-husband's house that she was soaking in bleach. And so his whole thing is like, you're saying that because there's no bloodstains on the rug, there must have been bloodstains on the rug that she cleaned off. And that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Which, in a weird way, makes sense. Yes. Um... So yeah, and the, he, the, he, the judge is like, yeah. okay, I, I, I hear you, and I think that's a fair assessment. Um, 
this will be convenient for the plot, therefore I allow it. <laughs> I, I, There are a lot of people in this movie. I could go into a lot of character actor corners. I don't want to do it for anyone but the judge here, which is uh, to say he previously starred with Brian Dennehy uh, in the movie that is for, as I mentioned in the previous episode, the reason for my existence, Tommy Boy. He, uh, oh, of course. He played um, the the corporation owner owner who uh chris farley was uh trying to he did the whole meat wagon the toy oh, car oh yeah yeah yeah. Wee-oo, wee-oo. yeah and, oh my and the new God. guys there puking yeah <laughs> and uh yeah. he gives one of the best line deliveries in that movie when <laughs> david spade just goes do you validate and he goes no <laughs> <laughs> no i don't um, so that's the judge, and uh, and and off of that that comedic performance, the director of this was like, "We need to reunite this team." <laughs> it was only one year later, so you're not wrong. They didn't share any wow. scenes in the previous movie. Brian Dennehy died uh, in Tommy Boy before uh, before that scene. But anyway, um, judge rules in their favor. You're, he's like, "You're right. The inferences about evidence that isn't there can't be added. So uh, make sure you tread carefully, Carla, prosecutor." Don't do it. Yeah. And she does not tread carefully. She treads very recklessly in this. <laughs> we cut to uh, the car and uh, Clem. You remember Clem? The uh, Oh, yes. The guy who the, the, is not in the movie at all addressed as the police dispatch, but in the book is. Uh, but he acts as the police informant to Brian Dennehy, uh, to Paul in this movie. Yes. The just the kind of greasy, unpleasant cop guy, not the yep. evil, greasy, unpleasant cop guy, <laughs> but just the the normal greasy. Unpleasant not not cop. Jimmy Lama, uh, who no. who plays uh, <laughs> well into the latter half of this. But um, he gives uh, Paul gives him uh, something. Uh, what was it? Was it the postcard? I can't I, even remember what he I, was giving. It was him. like a doorknob or something. I couldn't. I could not identify. <laughs> I even rewound this scene. I spent more time watching this movie to try and get a fuller impression. I've got it I don't, playing in the background as we do Jamaica. this. Oh, lucky you! I know. Um, but he hands he hands Clem something. He's like, uh, "I want you to run this for fingerprints. Don't worry about it. It's not gonna ring any alarm bells. It's just you know a straight up uh, lies. Straight up, <laughs> straight up. Well, he doesn't know at this point, and Paul doesn't know that it's going to sound off every alarm bell. But um, he just wants to run it for fingerprints because something about this Kathy Merlo obsession doesn't quite sit right with him. But that's the thing yeah. with obsessions. They they aren't ever going to sit right with you. That's why they're obsessions. If yeah, it made exactly. sense, it wouldn't stick in your craw. That's all I'm saying. He, he He's making it like it's the clue's fault, but really it's his fault that he's obsessed with the clue. <laughs> yeah. I also like that this Clem character only exists at the diner. Like, that's pure TV movie logic where it's like, you're not going to remember this character, so we have to tie him to a familiar place that he'll be at, whether it's the middle of the day or the evening or the middle of the night. Um, you need to remember that cop guy diner. <laughs> he's he's this weird undercover cop who works entirely out of a diner. It's like Twenty One Jump Street, but for a diner. He's like trying to like they're they've got they're putting cocaine in the scrambled eggs, so he works yeah. at the diner to try and catch the guy. Oh, then we cut to another scene. Okay, I, I honestly do think all of this stuff with the daughter could be cut, but yes, <laughs> this particular scene is weird. 
Um, yes. He, he's having dinner with his, with his daughter, and he basically is like, hey, you, you know, uh, I'd like to be honest with you. Just want you to let, want to let you know that, you know, I fucked Dana. <laughs> when we were in Jamaica, we were on a beach, and kind of first our foreheads were pressing against one another, and then we kind of brought our chins closer, and then our lips finally met this kind of electric connection of passion between us, and as we kissed again and again, um, she gently, softly whispered yes, and I gently, softly whispered yes back to her, honey, why are you crying? No, this I just want to be honest with you. I, he, But yeah, he tells her that, like... He he like in a remarkable amount of detail. It's like, well, I went down there with her as, and it was business, but then it turned into something else. And it's like, okay, dude, I respect you for wanting to keep your daughter in the loop, but this is a little too much. A, a little much. And to her credit, she rolls her eyes, and like <clears throat> her rolling her eyes is like she throws her head back, and you can she doesn't make an audible noise, but she does kind of like let out a <clears throat> just very big Ugh, energy. And she, yes. uh, uh, Dana shows up at that moment as well. But the 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 moment she makes that uh, face is the moment she entered adolescence. And like you could yeah. see it happen on screen. Yes. And yes. Uh, Dana shows now up. Now you're and she, a woman. She storms away from the table, uh, presumably to her room. The door slams. Mindless self indulgence starts blaring. Um, <laughs> I. And I also just have to say that they're having this conversation. Her daughter's, you know, his daughter's clearly not super cool about this. And then Jean Smart just showing up. Hey, anybody home? Just like, <laughs> she just dropped in like, hey, yeah, I just kind of started a thing with this dude who I've been after for a while. And I know his daughter's yeah. not cool with it. You know what's going to help? Just showing up. <laughs> just the pop in. Which, hey, she's done it before. It. She started making dinner with her in the last episode. So, um there's yeah. a whole other movie here that is, there I guess, is. basically audition about Gene Smart <laughs> being completely nuts. The uh, We cut to a little bit later. The daughter's asleep, and Paul kind of brushes her hair, and then uh, he sneaks downstairs to have a glass of wine uh, with Dana. Dana looks like she's already a bottle deep. You know, she's oh, her yeah. hair's a little tussled, her legs up, her skirt's hiked uh, a bit. Paul comes in and, like, kisses the fuck out of her so that we know yes. how they have progressed in their um, yes. relationship. And if you didn't know that, he drinks from the same glass of wine that she does. She He finishes Gross. her glass. <laughs> Ew! Uh, that's pre-COVID stuff for you. Um, oh boy. Dana asks uh, if he's scared, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I am." Sarah's scared too, and um, it, she's referring to what's happening between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Yes, and he's telling her how much he needs her and how he thinks about her all the time. And one of my notes here is just, "How are you so dumb, Denny?" <laughs> and she drops another bit of like I. She doesn't – there's no need for her to be as philosophical as she – like, as Nietzschean as his daughter is, Jean Smart's, like, dropping true life bombs on us because uh, she goes – she says something in this moment when he's afraid. uh says, you know, things happen to us whether good or bad, uh, and this is one of the good things. Um, you know, basically getting to the point, it's like things happen when you're not ready for them, <laughs> and you just need to let them happen. Um <laughs> They start Life making is what out. happens when you're making other plans, yeah. I guess so. They start making out, and Paul interrupts by handing over uh, photos of uh, the bomber. He's like, this is the mm-hmm. guy uh, that was the, the hitman. This is the guy that uh, I saw deliver the package. Um, 
Oh, she Don't hands know over where the... these pictures came from. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, didn't she, have them. But yeah, yeah, she she handed it to him. Uh, so he starts asking questions about who hired him and why. Um, then uh, she admits she says something. She says, "You know, the FBI has seen Jack talking to the hitman." Yes, uh, which sets up this narrative um, that this is the only. It's worth pointing out because it comes into play only in the epilogue of this. Uh, that this is a seed that's planted that Dana has said said that she has seen Jack Vega, the husband of Melanie Vega, the woman who got killed, uh, talking to this hitman. The the she's seen the U.S. senator, the sitting United States senator, yeah. talking to a hitman. Yes, yes. Well, and or even if that if not that it's that she has it's that they're the FBI informant who she knows of has. Yes. And and then and you know, Dennehy is saying, Okay, we need to I need to talk to this guy, we need to get this guy in the stand, and she's immediately like, No, no, he uh, he's gone, he disappeared, and he'd be a <laughs> shitty witness anyway. Yeah. And um and Brandon he's like, Ah, well, sucks. Okay, well everything else you said is true though. Cool. <laughs> uh yeah. I mean he he's basically saying, This guy's my whole case and she's mm-hmm. yeah basically distracts him by kissing him. <laughs> yeah, I, my note was he quickly forgets in the sweet midnight kisses of Dana. Oh, I mean <laughs> that was beautifully phrased, though. I mean, a really, really evocative uh, imagery. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, so, but yeah, he infers that okay, Vega hired the hitman when he found out his wife was pregnant, yeah. and then the Merlots saw him, so the hitman killed the Merlots and the lady at the post office. And is 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 he being played, uh, you know, to a T, like a violin by Gene Smart? Who knows? We'll find out later. I don't want to spoil anything, but guess what? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the morning, uh, in the morning, Gene Smart is still there, and there is some Fraser shit of like, oh, but we can't let my daughter know that you're still here. You gotta be quiet. <laughs> Basically, she wakes up, and as soon as she says something, goes, what? Shut, shut, shut the fuck up, Dana. My daughter doesn't know you're still here. <laughs> my my daughter definitely gets really didn't hear, aggressive with her. D- didn't hear the three hours of zoo noises we were making last <laughs> night after she went to bed. Um, so he goes downstairs so, and he yeah. sees uh, sees his daughter, you know, eating her breakfast, uh, getting ready for school, and he goes, "Okay, uh, you know, everything's fine and normal like it is on a normal morning when I'm here." Uh, however frequent that might be. See you later. Go to school. Get out of here. And then she goes, okay, bye, Dad. Bye, Dana. And yells upstairs. And then I I don't know if she did this, but I had the energy of her, like, yelling up goodbye, Dana, and then turning and giving her dad a dead-ass stare. (laughs) Just like, (laughs) I know what you did last night. I told you You I wasn't comfortable with it. (laughs) Yeah, he, like, she she yells it, and then we get this shot of Gene Smart upstairs, like, reaction shot of Gene Smart. Like, this is just a bit for, this is just for larfs. This is just yeah. a little bit of levity in a in a movie that is about terrorist attacks and people <laughs> getting murdered in Jamaica. Yep. But, yeah, that, that she, you know, we get this shot of Gene Smart going like, oh my god, and then kind of having a laugh about it. And it's, um, I don't know. Oh boy. It is what it is. It is what it is. Guess what, Truman? It's time for the trial to begin. 
Yay! Courtroom procedure! And my I favorite think, thing! I think that uh, this courtroom procedure is going to go a lot faster than the intricacies of a hitman and a budding romance. So, no, no, I'm, no, we are going to dissect every facet of the legal <laughs> arguments being put forth by these great actors in All these right. beautiful sets. Okay. Uh, um, Laurel shows up in her normal clothes because you don't want to show up looking like a prisoner so that you affect the jury to think that uh, maybe you are guilty. Um, Duh. The prosecution, Carla, starts making her opening remarks. She states that Laurel says Melanie tried to steal her kid. And she attacked Melanie just before she was killed. She went to the house the night of the murder and knew her way around because she used to live there. There was a violent argument. And evidence will show that Laurel returned and shot Melanie and her unborn child. That's bum. That, that's that's the opening case. Yeah, yeah. No, it's good. It's good. I've got goosebumps already. Just just waiting for it. <laughs> and so then, you know, they they put Detective Llama on the stand, and they're questioning him. They oh, show the CCTV. Jimmy footage. Llama, man, man, I Oof. love this guy. He's such a Dude he's such a douche. Feet. But uh, yeah. Jimmy Llama, man, he has got like. You could tell this actor. I, no no dispersions on any actor. Just trying to do their job, but like. He is like really gunning for a Law and Order episode. <laughs> like he is, even though this takes place in Virginia, he's really pushing that big New York cop energy. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I feel like Christopher Maloney just narrowly beat him out for for SVU, and this actor has never yeah. quite lived it down. So um, there's a there's they start reviewing the CCTV footage. Uh, and Jimmy Lama's kind of explaining about the bathroom murder scene, what he saw there. Uh, the, the, the jury, when they see Patricia Richardson smash the CCTV camera, the jury yeah. is visibly angry. We get people in there who's like, <laughs> my, my father was a CT, CCTV camera, you bitch. Like, people are upset. <laughs> and as Jimmy Lama's going on about this murder scene, um, this is where one of the moments where the judge is like, eh, judge wouldn't do that. Uh, cause he's like, the judge interrupts the testimony to go, just stick to the, don't draw conclusions about the struggle. Just tell you what he, what you saw. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it was weird. The jury, yeah, my note also was the jury didn't like the CCTV footage. Paul cross-examines, um, and he, he asks, okay, so, uh, was there any physical evidence of Laurel on the scene? It seems like there would be, uh, if this was previously her, uh, my, my note is, it seems like there would be physical evidence of her being there if yeah. she lived there before. I, I mean, yeah. I've li I have lived in an apartment, you know, in L.A. for 15 years. I'm sure there was still remnants, DNA remnants, somewhere in that apartment <laughs> of the previous tenant who lived there 15 years before I did. I Fuck, That's I moved into this place, which was spick and span. I mean, they did a great job cleaning it. And, you know, I took a bath. You know, I like to take baths and read. And as I was laying in the bath one day, I happened to, happened to just notice a speck of red on the side of the toilet that I didn't put there. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's something. That's disturbing. <laughs> that's, well, I don't think it's blood or anything, but, uh, you know, it's it's. I'm just saying there's evidence that somebody else lived here before I did. We, we need, well, and there wasn't even a murder Lama scene on the case. Yeah. yeah well, y y we assume it's not a murder scene. What is that speck of red, Landon? <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, anyway, Paul lays in and says, uh, "Now, isn't it true that you decided she was the killer based on what evidence 
uh, or <laughs> yeah, he he's like getting really up in his face, saying, "You decided that she was the killer before you had any evidence. What evidence Senator, do you have, motherfucker?" Yeah, like Senator Vega basically told Detective Llama that he assu- that you know, ah, oh, my wife did it, and then and then Llama just ran with that. So he's yeah. Yeah, and, the first and of many Mama's, Dennehy Lama's, yelling at, yeah, <laughs> yeah, many many uh, Dennehy yelling, and Lama's like, hey, you know, I made the uh, assumption based on the footage, and plus she used to live there, so she could have had a key. You know what I mean? Hey, I'm framing here. Hey. <laughs> uh, and, also, yeah. Well, well, I mean, Brian Brian Dennehy is just getting so outraged and yeah. yelling and everything about Lama, and this is all hearsay, and your whole. Hearsay. Your whole your whole case is built on hearsay, and like it's all the word of one person. One scene before this, Gene Smart says, "Oh yeah, this FBI informant who totally exists saw this thing happen." <laughs> oh, can I talk to him? No, you can't. Uh, can he testify? No, he can't. Well, uh, you said it, so it's got to be true. Like his his everything that he believes about the Merlots right now is based yep. on hearsay, and he's got no problem with that. <laughs> It's and I want to take a moment to comment too on the. I think it's kind of a, a way of acting that uh, people who play lawyers do on these shows, where you have these heated moments where you back a witness into a corner, and then the judge kind of like gives you a tiny little slap on the wrist, but you've made your point, and so you have this kind of shit eating grin on your face. Then you change your energy, and it's like, okay, I'm gonna attack this from another angle. So. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you you didn't have any. You made an assumption based on. Okay, great. Okay, fine. I'm not. I'm trying to put words in your mouth. Okay, fine. Uh, do you do you generally just, set uh, out? just one more thing? Uh... <laughs> yeah, kind of. He's like, so, um, uh, Mr. Llama, Detective Llama, do you do you normally send out APVs based on uh, could have hads? Uh, <laughs> you know, like he's he's now he's made his point, and so he's got this kind of shit eating grin on his face, uh, taking the smug approach to the the witness after exploding at him two minutes ago. And um, so once Lama says, you know, uh, she could have had a key to the place, he goes, do you send out APVs based on could have hads? The the prosecution goes, objection! But she doesn't state on what grounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she just yells out object. I don't like this! <laughs> I declare bankruptcy! <laughs> That's exactly what those moments are. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah uh, Paul asks about yeah. Jack Vega at this point uh, to tie in a little bit of what you're saying about Dana. And the judge says, uh, uh, shut the fuck up, basically. Which, yeah, again, is like, much. I don't know why the judge is, is weighing in unless he's saying, you know, this line of questioning has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, he doesn't I, say my, that. my note is just the judge isn't buying it and he's mad. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're, we're jumping ahead then. Yeah, from there outside like next day. Yeah, well, yeah, outside because uh, we have to establish that the the proceedings aren't going well for Paul, uh, as we saw by the judge getting angry for no reason. Uh, so he kind of bitches to Harry. This is one of those reiteration scenes of like, where are we with this? Um, yeah, and Dana comes out and suggests they get some dinner. Uh, he's like, I, I don't know, I, the, the trial's going so bad. I don't, I don't feel like I can eat. Uh, I'm not eating anymore. Yeah, and he walks away, and Dana just kind of stares, watches him walk off into the distance, and says to Harry, but kind of to nobody, uh, as she's just kind of you know lost in her days, and he's like, the the whole world is on those big shoulders. 
<laughs> no, none of the assassin's bullets could hit those big shoulders. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, so the next day, uh, the witness is the cop that arrested Laurel uh, at the hotel. And mm-hmm. he talks about the rug being washed. Uh, he also testifies that a woman's compact was found that turns out uh, that had the initials MJV, Melanie something Vega. Um, and uh, Paul's like, okay, it's time for my cross-exam. Did Laurel resist? No, she didn't. Okay, no further questions. That's it. <laughs> uh, next, closed. Witness, <laughs> next witness is an old friend of Laurel's. Um, they make a much bigger deal of this part in the book to – Put this like this could have been cut from the movie. Uh, it's yeah. basically a character witness. The prosecution has brought an old friend of Laurel's who we've never met before, had no yes. <laughs> inclination of before this moment. Um, basically, to characterize Laurel as somebody with a hot temper, she asks about a lunch they once had and how um, angry Laurel was about the divorce, and uh, gets gets uh, the witness to say, "What did she say at that lunch?" And, and they, <laughs> basically, the the Witness goes, well, she said she wanted to kill a bitch. (laughs) I do love that, like, one of the primary character traits of Patricia Richardson's character in this is that she swears a lot. (laughs) Just, like, (laughs) thinking about Jill wanting to kill a bitch, uh, this feisty, foul-mouthed Jill. Um, But, yeah, Yeah. against this this witness's, like, wishes, like, she clearly doesn't want to be doing this and feels like she, and, like, the prosecutor, this is, I think this scene is here just to show how evil the prosecutor is. But it's like, you you said I wouldn't have to... (sighs) She said that she wanted to kill the bitch, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, Paul recognizes this. So on cross-examination, he says, you're here because you're under a subpoena, right? You don't want to be here. And she's like, yes. And mm-hmm. uh, he goes, okay, when she said she wanted to kill a bitch, uh, did you think she wanted to go kill a bitch? And she's like, no, of course not. It was just an expression. And he's like, okay, case closed. Yep, yep. <laughs> Uh, and then we, then we go to the back room uh, where yes. uh, Laurel can talk to, to Paul for a moment. And Laurel's like, this is going bad, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, Denny, and you know, Denny's assistant is trying to, like, ma- make it look nice. And Denny's like, yeah, it's going badly. They also have, there are some very sad-looking sandwiches sitting on the table, like some half-eaten sandwiches that yeah. look like they're made of plastic. <laughs> And this scene also made me laugh out loud because this is the first line, 40 minutes into the the episode, the first line that Patricia Richardson has. And I thought it was going to be a scene that we could, like, dig into, but she has six words. It's going bad, isn't it? Just bringing, just, just bringing us up to speed, just in case, in case you you laymen in the audience don't know what this looks like. And I, it just made me laugh thinking of you on the couch going, "Oh, great, okay, great." So she's not in this at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, again, if, there was even less P. Rich in this, I think, than in the first season, in the first episode. <sighs> Cut back to the court. Um, perhaps after recess, uh, the new witness is the coroner. Uh, he says that yes. The bullet wound was the cause of death. Deceased was five months pregnant. And uh, Paul protests here, says uh, he asks to be heard out because uh, uh, the prosecution is about to introduce uh, the photos of the fetus, uh, the autopsy of the, this dead baby. And Paul's like, yeah, hold on a second. Before you do that, let me uh, – yeah, I want to be he- heard out on these things. Uh, and asks the judge to uh, uh, have a quick sidebar uh, in his office to discuss how these, uh, how and if these uh, photos of a dead fetus was going to be introduced. 
Yes, because basically if the jury sees pictures of a dead baby, they're automatically going to hate her and then right. they'll get they'll give her the death penalty. I don't I don't know anything about law, but that seems like a fair assessment to me and I think yeah. you know, like we're talking about the the murder of Melanie, uh the you know, photos of a baby are kind of a side it's a, it's a cheap move. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. The the only the only way the jury is really going to care. It's not that this woman died. It's that a fetus died. That's yeah. what that's what's really going to get people juiced up. But this scene is very important because what's happening here is uh, Paul is saying um, that the photos are unnecessary, but we will concede to the fact that a baby was murdered, and by making that concession. He's basically saying, making an all-or-nothing situation, as we'll, as Laurel will point out in a moment. Um, because by conceding that the baby was murdered means that it's capital punishment. And if he had just kept it only to arguing whether or not Melanie was killed, uh, she wouldn't, uh, Laurel wouldn't be on trial for um, the death penalty. Yes. So they need a special circumstance to make the death penalty stick, and that's what this whole baby situation is about. Yes. <laughs> the baby situation, not to be confused with the character from Jersey Shore Babies. Uh, <laughs> but continue, please. And so this is this is a moment where I really wanted, like, Patricia Richardson's performance is very layered here. Because yes. it's she's giving something that this movie isn't asking for. Which is, like, <laughs> she's weighing on you know her mind this idea of do i accept i mean for what what will turn out you know uh the explanation as to why she's really going through all of this uh do i accept the idea of an all or nothing situation to uh for the reasons that i'm i'm going through all of this you know yeah. i was expecting just prison but holy shit now we're talking about death am i prepared to die for this and yeah. that that kind of existential question is playing out in Patricia Richardson's eyes. It's fantastic. Yeah, again, she is uh, like, and I think we've talked about this before on various episodes of the podcast, where it, it feels like one actor is acting in a different movie than all the other yes. people, and like the the yeah. level that Patricia Richardson is bringing to this is so much more nuanced than Brian Dennehy going like, I gotta make it right and go to Jamaica. Like this is, <laughs> this is a much more, <laughs> I, there's just a lot more subtlety to what she's doing. And that's yeah. part of why it's so aggravating that she's said six words thus far. Yeah. But she asks Paul, she says, okay, what would you do in my situation? And he says, if there's a slightest chance that I could go home to my kid, don't forget that there's Danny in this whole situation that has disappeared from the scene. Uh, yes. <laughs> if there's the slightest chance that I could go home for my kid, I'd take the risk. And she just goes, okay, okay, let's do it. Right. Uh, she ex she accepts it. So we go back to court. Um, the next witness is the uh, the dude who helped uh, pick up the purses uh, in the lobby. Yes. You remember at the beginning of the last episode uh, when, when Laurel loses her cool after the divorce proceedings and swings her purse at um, – uh, Melanie I, I, Vega's head. Yes, one of one of many scenes of Laurel losing her cool. Uh, the, I was <laughs> noting that the sheer the sheer volume of CCTV footage of her fighting with people makes her basically a walking world star video. I mean, she is just constantly. <laughs> 
Like in it's the true. 90s, yeah. to be constantly caught on camera fighting people. It's it's in in the same way that it's kind of impressive that in the 70s, Barack Obama never smoked weed without somebody photographing <laughs> him doing it. It's kind yeah. of amazing that in the 90s, she never fights somebody without a camera recording it. Yeah. Um, and Persis goes playing everywhere. The things inside go all over the place. Uh, and you know, the, the prosecution, this is a big turning point because the prosecution feels like they have this, you know, nailed. Okay. Killed a baby. Look at her being violent toward the victim. This is only, you know, days before the murder happened. And Harry mm-hmm. whispers into Paul's ear, don't bother with this guy, man. She th- don't, this point she's got you on. And Paul just kind of like. In, in in no previous moments to this moment <laughs> do we have any inclination that that Paul might have an aha moment. Uh, he he watches this unfold, and Harry whispers in his ear, "Don't fuck with this guy. We'll just wait until you can get her on the next point." Paul's like, "You know what? I think I'm gonna fuck with this guy. I think I got an idea." <laughs> Yeah, Paul. Paul's whole legal strategy is basically just like legal spider sense. Like he kind of just like he yes. he doesn't seem to do any prep work ahead of time. He kind of just does it like jazz in the moment, and it all works <laughs> yeah. out. It really does. And so he he decides to dig into it. He stands up completely, just like Harry looking at him. You know, jaw agape, going, "What are you doing? Don't go! You wait! I told you not to do it!" And he's doing it. He's going up there. And this is goes, the uh, also the legal equivalent of when James Brown uh, they put the the jacket over him and they start <laughs> helping him away from the microphone and then he throws the jacket off and runs back because he has to keep singing and like one of those. I don't know why uh, this they made a point of this in the book as well and I guess the TV movie is only being as faithful as the book but they they make it a point to. Uh, bring in this audio visual guy, this AV guy that's trying to get the, the thing to play. And, uh, he goes, okay, play the, play the footage. And he goes, okay, well, I got to get, give me a second. I got to rewind it, uh, back to the place. He's like, no, 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 no. Play it from there. (laughs) I don't want you to rewind it. I want you to play it from where you left off. (laughs) People at the time still weren't totally on board with how VCRs work. I guess you needed this character to make sense of it. (laughs) <laughs> and so uh, they play it from the CC where they cut off the where the prosecution cut off the footage and play the remainder of the scene. And uh, he goes, OK, freeze it there after the, the contents of the purses go splaying everywhere. Um, and enhance the, uh, enhance. Th- that's exactly what my notes say, even though they don't say it on screen. The the image does seem to like zoom in on all of the stuff on the, the ground. <laughs> As if there was like some really curious uh uh guy in the, the display booth that was operating all the cameras in the lobby that day. It was just like, Oh, what's going on there? Oh yeah, my kink is watching what girls have in their purses. Let's see what just spilled out. <laughs> That I mean, yeah. That this this is before the internet, of course. So he would just like put the put pictures of what girls have in their purses into a scrapbook that he <laughs> circulates with the other pervy security guards. Gross. Um, um, but yeah, but they, they, they zoom in on Patricia. They yeah, zoom but, in on Patricia Richardson's eye, and in the reflection of her eye, you can see the. the no, they don't actually do that, but they do zoom in on the compact on the floor. Yeah. As, as the bailiff was uh, grabbing all the contents to put it into Laurel's purse, he pauses on him grabbing the compact, and Paul makes it a point. He goes, so that compact, does that look like this compact? And he brings the one from evidence, which is Melanie's. He goes, yeah, they look alike. He goes, do they look alike or are they the exact same one? And he goes, well, yeah, no, they're the exact same one. 
and um, he then continues to play the footage, and we watch as he puts it into Laurel's bag. Bada bang, just like that, one piece of evidence out of circulation. Take that, prosecution. Super lawyer. Suck it. The case is turning uh, to Paul's favor. You know how I know? How? Jazzy music starts to play. (laughs) (laughs) That's yeah. That's the sound of victory right there. Is when you get like, burp, 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 burp. <laughs> uh, in a back room, Laurel comes in uh, from that proceeding. She's really happy. She's like, "Oh my god, yes, things are turning around." Um, and Paul's like, "Listen, we got to talk. Uh, I want to go see about a plea." <laughs> mm-hmm. And like the, the back and forth for Laurel's like, you know, maybe an hour ago, he's like, "You know what? This play at all? We're gonna go all for nothing." And then an hour yeah. later, he's like, "I'm gonna go see about a plea." And she's like, "Wait, but wait, just what's happening? <laughs> the emotional it's, roller coaster you're taking me on is too turbulent." I, it's like it's like Brian Dennehy in moments like these is well aware. Like, no, Laurel, my entire legal strategy is to just start saying shit and hope that it sticks. <laughs> so we're really better off. Like anything that ends the trial before this doesn't work out for me again yeah. is best for you. But uh, she refuses. She likes she likes what he's putting down. Yeah, she's not having it. She sits and thinks that Paul just wants to give up. Uh, she she even says, I, I thought we agreed it was all or nothing. And he's like, I don't want to see you die. And uh, she says, no, no, I can't do it. Uh, and she starts to break down. And again, a big just, acting moment. Yeah. Uh, and uh, not like a hammy moment, but like, my God, this is why they hired Patricia Richardson. And this is why Patricia Richardson is Patricia Richardson. That's a tongue twister. Um, yeah. <laughs> and this is the moment where they, like, at the height of her amazing performance, just cut to the next scene. <laughs> yep. 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 Like, she's in the middle of, like, making this tearful statement about why she's going to stay and why she's going to fight and why she doesn't want to offer the plea and give in. And just like, well, that's enough of that. <laughs> and we cut to outside. Paul and Harry are heading out of the court, and the media stops Paul in his tracks to ask about the fingerprints that were found on the bomb at the Postal Service. Oh, yes. no. How did that happen? <laughs> and this takes us down a weird subplot alley that makes no sense. No sense at all. It makes, I mean, it'll end up making sense, but it is very strained. I will give you that. I, so, uh, you see, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go through it, and I'll call out my issue with it. Okay. but I'm not so saying it ju- makes logical sense in the sense of the story, but I'm saying they, they try to address it in some very asinine sort of way. Um, sure. Yeah. But so so the the judge is very upset at the pro like we're in the judge's chambers now. Yep. Just the you know, uh Paul and the prosecutor and the judge. Judge is super upset at the prosecutor that that information about the bombing has leaked, that that uh that Paul's fingerprints were on the bomb, you know, uh and Detective Llama is there and he's mad at Detective Llama because he's in charge of the post office bombing investigation, so yep. clearly he's connected. But then he's also mad at Brian Dennehy for being implicated in the bombing. And he's saying, Oh, people on the jury lost friends in this bombing and, and we gotta sequester the jury so people don't find this out. Like he wants to remove Brian Dennehy from the yeah. case, basically. Yeah, and you know, he's trying to get information from Jimmy Llama at this point too, and this is one of the best Jimmy Llama moments in the movie for my money. Because uh, when the judge says, you know, is he, you know, a suspect? What's going on here? And Jimmy Lama is like, eh, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I can't say he's not ruled out, but he's not ruled out. He's not not ruled out. You know, uh, I'll look into it, whatever. You know, just uh, cool your jets there, boss. Hey, who's a suspect? Who's not a suspect? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> hey, we're all born the suspect. And then sometimes you're not. 
Uh, the judge is trying to be fair, but he tells Paul that this is a shit show and that he will remove him in a heartbeat if he thinks it's in the benefit of Laurel. Um, yes. So he says he's going to sequester the jury until tomorrow morning so that they don't get any wind of this uh, potential scandal until he's uh, the judge has made a decision whether or not to keep Paul on the case. Uh, so we cut from this very dramatic moment that we don't know what's going to happen in the trial to, uh, Paul at home and he's crawling. Okay. Uh, I, I'm he's so crawling <laughs> over someone. I'm so, I don't, I don't like to call out physical attributes of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 crude and 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 yeah. easy shot to make. Yes, and I I don't even like it when you know the liberal people do it to the Republican people. Like that's just it feels like a cheap shot. I don't like to go yeah. there. But agreed, agreed. There's something about this movie trying to make Brian Dennehy a you know sex romantic symbol. lead. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't go like, as far it, as saying a sex symbol, but I would say a romantic lead. And he's like crawling into bed with like a super baggy T-shirt and boxer shorts next to Dana, who is wearing lingerie. And like he's taking up half the frame. I mean, it's like the least <laughs> sexy moment I can picture. This this movie really thinks that we just want to see Brian Dennehy kissing women. We we just want to see Brian Dennehy in an amorous horny mood and we don't. I'm I'm sorry. It's true. And it but the problem is that it's so distracting that it takes away from what is important to the llama story, which is he go Paul is explaining to Dana that he has a history with llama that it's it's his it was his lawyering, basically, that got Llama demoted from the detective uh, unit or whatever elite thing he was involved with because Jimmy Llama is a scummy, you know, corrupt police person. And um, it was Paul's uh, uh, testimony or Paul's lawyering that, that demoted him, essentially. So Jimmy Llama has something out for Paul, a, a personal I- vendetta. <laughs> I I also love that this is like the first instance of Game of Thrones style sex position. Like you've got people in a uh, in kind of an amorous setting hooking yeah. up while talking about boring plot details. <laughs> um, they ha- still they, it still had some refining to do before we get to Littlefinger's brothel twenty years later. <laughs> a little bit, uh, but before Brian Dennehy, not he, I don't know. He just looks like he's smothering her. It's it's a little bad, and I'm saying that as a rotund dude myself. So, uh, before they could really get it on, the phone rings, and it's Clem. Remember Clem? Clem is the diner. Oh, forget the diner cop. <laughs> yes, twenty twenty one Diner Street. Yes. Yep. Uh, he's like, you got to meet me. The, those fingerprints you got me, man. They are hot to trot. Uh, meet me. Uh, meet me at the diner. <laughs> Because that's the only place you know me from. Uh, meet, meet me the only place that I exist. <laughs> Paul pulls up into the diner parking lot in the middle of the night. It's My note was, it's dark, and there's lots of darkness all around. My my note, my note was, somebody's going to die. I was expecting that the cop was going to get shot by that same clumsy assassin. Oh, yes. Uh, Paul gets into Clem's car and Clem says, look, those present, uh, those prints, they weren't from a woman named Merlo. Uh, it was a woman who was put into witness protection. Uh, Kathy Merlo died six years ago. So whoever what? you're talking about isn't Kathy Merlo. Therefore, the people he met were living under false identities, I guess. 
Supposedly. Uh, I mean, this is one question I have for the narrative of this thing, which is like, Clem literally says she was in witness protection. How does Paul, Paul not at this point go, oh, Kathy Merlo didn't exist, so the person I was talking to was in witness protection? He doesn't seem to put that together in this moment. <laughs> No, no, not at all. He he only puts together as much as he needs to to get through the rest <laughs> of the scene. Uh, and speaking through, speaking of getting through, we go to the next scene, uh, which is court. And Paul pushes all the media aside as he's uh, getting in. They all have questions about his his and, fingerprints. Yeah, everyone's asking about the bombing. Everybody, yeah, yeah. like he's the prime suspect. This is my thing. This is my issue with it. Okay, his his fingerprints were found on the bomb. Okay, sure, but like <laughs> that's all. <laughs> Okay, I, I'm not a great. I'm, maybe I'm not a great lawyer right now. Maybe, maybe my case is not good. Okay, but the, his fingerprints are found in the bomb, and so that's all it takes for the media to go like, ah, yes, this um, respected lawyer member of the community um, who's never shown any signs of violence. You're or, forgetting like, angelic single father. And widow. Ange- angelic single father and widow. Like, just they're like, well, I mean, his fingerprints were on a package. Like, his fingerprints were found at the scene of a bombing in a public building that he had visited a couple times before. Clearly, he's a domestic terrorist, I guess. <laughs> there's no motive. But, hey, we're the American media. If there's one thing we love to do, it's finding uh, powerful white men <laughs> and immediately going after them and taking them down instead of giving them every possible excuse. It's just it's just a little weird to me that, that's, that, that with no motive whatsoever, everyone yep. is immediately willing to assume that he woke up one day and decided to bomb a federal building. It is a little deus ex machina of the writer to just go, we need more stakes against against our our protagonist so let's just feast the mob on him foist the mob on him um but they're at the court uh the next day i mean i don't disagree with you on any of that uh it is just a a mindless mob out to arbitrarily raise the stakes that will just be immediately diminished in this next scene anyway so the judge is there and he decides to remove paul from the trial uh, the trial is to proceed with Harry as the main lawyer. I guess that's the whole reason Harry exists in this movie. That and for Paul to just, you know, reiterate story points. The, the, the main reason is for is for is someone for Harry to talk. Like that's someone for yeah. Brian Dennehy to talk yeah. to. That's why Harry's there. The secondary purpose is for him to temporarily take over. <laughs> but he doesn't even have to because in the middle of uh, the judge ruling on his decision in the back room here, uh, the phone rings. It's uh, the judge's secretary, and she has Dana Colby there to send uh, send in to illuminate a little bit of uh, information on this situation. Dana says to the judge. That Paul is not now, nor has he ever been a suspect in this bombing. The leak didn't come from our side. Uh, you know, the leak to the press about Paul's fingerprints on this didn't come from the FBI side. It must have come from the city, the police. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, the judge goes, you know, looks from Dana, slowly turns his head over into the corner where Jimmy Lama happens to be sitting. And turns out Lama is the one that leaked this to the press. So all that drama came from Llama. <laughs> yes. But yes, once again, Brian Dennehy has prevailed over his arch nemesis, Jimmy Llama. And um, so then, so, and that just kind of ties that whole thing up with a bow. Yeah, never comes and up then, again. Nope, nope. The 12 people who died, uh, God bless. Um, so... 
then uh you know next up it's going to be senator vega on the witness yeah. stand ahead Trial of time ramping Dennehy. up you've got a you got a a star witness now this is if, if you're watching courtroom tv uh this is like the moment you tune in yes and Dennehy cautions Patricia Richardson ahead of time, don't make any outbursts in court, no yep. matter what he says. Whenever you see someone in a movie cautioning someone else not to do an outburst, <laughs> that person's going to do an outburst. That's just that's yeah. just a rule. So Jack's on the stand, and he says that Laurel hated Melanie. Uh, and the judge tells him to basically shut your fucking mouth and answer the questions. Don't, don't insert information you're not being asked about. Um, yes. Again, the judge just asserting himself in this case where, you know, he probably shouldn't be. Um, Carla asks about the night of the pregnancy. Jack, uh, meaning, you know, the night that, that Melanie told Jack. And Jack says that he was very happy and he wanted uh, very much to have a family with Melanie. And, um, uh, you know, I think we forgot to mention a very important point. Uh, I think this happened in the middle of the night when right before Dana showed uh, Paul, the uh, photos of the hitman. She also <laughs> said that uh, they have on tape uh, the, f- oh, uh, the, the the call from the the doctor. That was in the, the last call from, episode. That was in the last episode. But at some point, also, we learn uh, that that Jack has had a vasectomy. Um, that might have also been the last episode. Yeah, that was in the last episode. Patricia Richardson mm-hmm. tells him mm-hmm. that. Yes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember too many but details from this movie. The the call the call that is. Uh, Important to, to note here is that Jack intercepted the, the call from Melanie's gynecologist, and the gynecologist told Jack that Melanie was pregnant. Uh, and so when Paul cross-examines here, he basically says, isn't it true that um, – um, well, okay, I, I want to point out first. Uh, before before Paul goes into his cross-examination, he, he starts off right off the bat – addressing the jury and says, you know, uh, I just want to say, you know, we used to be related, Jack and I. Uh, Yes, he was my ex, and Jack says, yeah, we were related. Uh, He used to be my ex-wife's brother-in-law, which is, like, such a strained relation to try, for the reader or the viewer to try to keep in mind. My ex-wife's brother-in-law. So Paul isn't even related to Laurel, and Laurel is no longer related to Jack, so at no point, even when everyone was together, was Jack alive. Rela- was Jack and and Paul related in any sense of the word? Yeah, they they briefly had kind of a tenuous like connection in the eyes of the law that no yeah. longer exists. Anyway, so then he goes into the cross examination and says, um, the uh, he brings up the gynecologist and says that uh, uh, you know. Do you do you know the name of this uh, this doctor? It's your your wife's gynecologist. And Jack's like, oh yeah yeah, I don't I don't recall. Uh, he's like, didn't didn't that gynecologist actually phone the house? And he's like, no, he might he probably did. Uh, yeah, you know, he's yeah. playing playing it stupid. And then but Paul starts to nail him on the fact that you know I think that this is your your uh, Melanie's gynecologist. I do think he did call the house, and I do think you talked to him. And I think you talked to him before Melanie told you about the pregnancy. Isn't that true? That he told you, in fact, that she was pregnant before Melanie told you, and that Melanie didn't actually tell you that she was pregnant. And 
Jack is completely squirming this entire time and kind of going like, um, well, uh, no, maybe, no. And he keeps, like, looking to the judge for yeah. help, and the judge is just looking at him like, what the fuck? Mind you, again, this is a sitting United States senator who's entire, like, who presumably has to engage in debates with people to get elected, and, who, like, <laughs> yeah. he cannot think on his feet. A man who is well-versed in lying, given that he is being prosecuted for corruption. Yeah, I, and so then he he continues down this thing and he goes, okay, well let's play the name game. This is Paul. Let's play the name game. Does uh, Doctor Charles Elliot mean anything to you? And Jack's like, what? What? He's still on that kind of like, uh, he's he's been poised on his heels here. He's a little he's scrambling for you know, um, his his uh, I don't know, gravitas. his footing. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, his footing. Yeah. And he goes, well, yeah, I think he, I think you do know Dr. Charles Elliot. Wasn't he, in fact, your doctor? In fact, didn't he perform surgery on you? And what, what? And Jack's like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, I guess you're right. Yeah, I can't deny that. He, you can see the gears turning in his head, going, mm-hmm. okay, I can't squirm out of that one because they can prove I'm, that. <laughs> yeah, I'm under oath. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, Paul's like, okay, well, so. Uh, you say that you were really happy with Melanie and that you wanted to have a family with you, but what procedure did uh, did this uh, Dr. Charles Elliott actually perform on you? And at this point, like, Vega cracks open. <laughs> He's like, a vasectomy, yeah. okay? A vasectomy, is that what you want to hear? <laughs> And he's, and then Denny's, Denny, he just like, then switches himself into yell mode. And he's like, yeah, I didn't want, I, I knew that already. I just wanted them to hear it. Weren't you angry? (laughs) Didn't you want to kill the guy who got your wife pregnant? And he's just, he's just like yelling at this U.S., sitting U.S. senator on the witness stand. And the, and the senator is yelling back at him. The judge is hammering on the, with his gavel. The prosecutor isn't saying anything about this. The order! And the, and all, through all of this, imagine all of this happening in the background. Just like, that's how you know this shit's gone off the rails. Oh, but the what stops all of this is Laurel. She she stands up and goes, enough, enough about the baby, enough about the pregnancy. Um, and uh. Oh, at some point, Dana comes in and hands over something to, to Paul as well. He slams it on yeah. the counter. A manila envelope. I don't remember what was in it. But basically, this ends, this culminates, the scene culminates very messily and then tries to wrap it up, in, like putting a neat bow on a piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> because yeah. after this big explosion in the court, this big revelation that Jack couldn't possibly have, uh, you know, whatever that he was corrupt, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. Uh, Dana comes in and, and, as she said in the previous episode, we'll try to culminate this uh, before the trial. She hands over um, the information, the the proof that Jack has been um, cooperating with the FBI, and so that's yeah. what uh, Paul slams down on the counter in front of him and says, "How long have you been a senator? Twelve years. Isn't it true that you've been cooperating with the FBI? You're corrupt, aren't you?" There's a big explosion in the court. Um, Paul sits well, not, down not a, in not victory. A, not a literal. Not a literal. Explo- not, 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 not a literal explosion. No. Uh, I, yeah, I should specify that. Uh, <laughs> then he sits down in victory, and we cut to a shot of uh, a newspaper. <laughs> the media has uh, apparently completely forgotten about Paul and his fingerprints, and is now on to the corrupt senator that's been yes. uh, informing to the FBI. Dude we all thought was a terrorist exposes senator as corrupt. <laughs> uh, okay, we cut to a little bit later. 
back in the court, Carla, the prosecution, has brought in another doctor. A doctor, yes, that does DNA tests. And what does this DNA test prove? That, um, uh, that yeah, go ahead. That, uh, th- that Senator Vega is 100% that bitch. Um, <laughs> and, and he is the father of the, the uh, uh, deceased fetus. Yeah. And... And goes on to say that there there is a rare chance that people who've had a vasectomy can still father children, and and so and this is just like a huge kill shot for like the the prosecutor is so proud of herself for this and and Dennehy and his his team are all just completely devastated by this news and I just kind of love that the prosecution's whole like big winning argument is like yeah your honor my client is guilty of anything it's fucking too hard <laughs> his he's just got super sperm he just gets it you know no no vasectomy can stop his incredible fertility <laughs> That's every every man's dream, I think, on some primal level, yeah. is to have the court system of the United States enter into the official <laughs> record that your jizz is that that robust. Ay ay ay. This takes Paul and the whole defense through like a loop. They they're very demoralized here. Um and Paul says he's not gonna cross examine, and uh, the judge is like, okay, we're gonna adjourn for the day. Paul is very sad. He's very dismayed. But something yes. something just isn't sitting right with him. He's like, there's something I'm not seeing here. And um, But, you know, he doesn't want to put he, – he realizes, hey, I'm playing with Laurel's life here. I can't be, I can't be hasty in my decisions. So mm-hmm. he walks out in the halls. He finds Carla, the prosecutor, and says, listen, I'm going to ask you for a plea. We, uh, we both know that Laurel didn't do it. You're just doing this out for blood. Uh, you, we're talking about a woman's life here. So why don't you just, you know, agree to a plea here? Yeah. And uh, and she basically, like, you know, gives him the finger, like, yeah. hands him a tampon, <laughs> says, like, what are you on your period or something, bitch? <laughs> like, she she is so mean to Brian Dennehy in this moment. She tap dances on his grave. Yeah. Uh, we cut to home. Um, Sarah calls out for her daddy. Daddy? 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 Daddy, you home? And uh, she finds him moping. <laughs> yes. And I, my, my only note is uh, his daughter gives him some childlike wisdom because that's yep. all she does. She's just a vending machine of uh, <laughs> naive little insights. Uh, yeah. She goes, and the insight is, if there's one thing I've learned from you, Dad, it's that it's okay to cry. <sighs> that, that's, that's my big takeaway from this movie, too. Crying is what got me through. Uh, <laughs> we go uh, to the courtroom the next day. Paul says uh, they can't go anywhere uh, with the case. Uh, talks about the DNA results being Jack's baby. This is the back room. He's talking to Laurel uh, mm-hmm. about where they're going to go for the day. Dana comes in um, and says, uh, uh, Paul says to her, you know, um, I could, <laughs> I'd love you to be in court today. Uh, I could really use all the, the support I can get out there. And she says, "Sure." Yeah. This is she. She's like, "Goes okay, yeah, sure, of course I'll be there." She, she's an FBI agent in the middle of the day on a Tuesday. Doesn't she have a job to do? Yeah, or like, well, okay. Also, I don't even, I don't even, I'm not even sure she is an FBI agent. I think I heard her referred to as a deputy U.S. attorney. In which case, she has even more stuff to be doing. <laughs> this is a huge job. You know, all she's doing is is going to Jamaica to bone or like hanging out in court to watch her boyfriend. Right. Um, okay, so we cut the court, and, uh, dun-dun-dun, are you ready for a big mic drop? Mic drop? No, that's not what, uh, uh, a twist drop. 
A twist drop? A is twist. that when you when is that when you when you what drop your Twizzlers or something? Yep, it's a really sad moment because it gets all dirty and you got to brush them off and decide if you want to go with the five second rule. Uh, it, it, no, it's actually a happy moment because Twizzlers suck and red vines are the only <gasps> kind of licorice anyone wants to eat. Oh, you're on the other side of this one. Okay, Land, I think we can't be friends anymore, dude. I you have bad taste in licorice. <laughs> But we both like black licorice. That that's the 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 two True. muscular arms coming together uh, <laughs> <True>. <laughs> meme of us that we we are two of the only people on the face of land like black licorice. Oh, okay, you know you're you're right, Landon. You know what? We we need to put aside our petty differences in terms of the brand of licorice that we like to agree that that black licorice is. We we alone, the two of us, are holding up the black licorice it's industry. True. If one of us quits eating it, they'll stop making it. <laughs> Um, so the big Twizzler drop here is, um, as soon as they enter court, uh, Dana, who's there to support Paul based on his, you know, suggestion that, hey, you know, I know you love me, so why don't you be in court and support me? He, he manipulates that, that emotional thread in Dana and immediately calls her to the stand. Dana, I want to call you as a, as a witness in this to give testimony. And, uh, Dana walks by her. By him as as she's entering the sand. She's like, don't do this, Paul. Don't do this to us. Don't do this yes. to me. Don't do this to you. Don't yes. do this to our future. Yes. <laughs> yes. Just lots of whispered things. I'm I don't, sorry. I'm it sorry. doesn't work when we're both whispering. It's just extra I, uh, creepy. <laughs> I, I'm, so, I'm sorry that all of you had to hear me whispering yes so many times. It's bad. It's bad. No. Um, no. So this is a big moment for Paul. This is a big moment for Dana. This is a big moment for their relationship. Uh, because even though it's not spelled out, Paul has basically put this whole thing together and realized Dane has been using him. So he's mm-hmm. like, he's he thinks the whole relationship has been a, a, a facade. Uh, it's all been a charade. But and, Paul, uh, Paul has realized what we knew uh, an hour ago. <laughs> yeah. And so he asks Dana, so where were you on the night of the murder? Uh, she goes outside the Vega house. I just uh, lived in the area, just uh, dropped by. I heard some sirens. Uh, and Paul's like, that wasn't the real reason, though, was it? No, uh, maybe that's not why she was there, she says. Uh, she was no. talking. <laughs> she was, uh, he asked her, weren't you talking to uh, the Merlos, the neighbors of the Vegas? Uh, and she goes, yes, I was. And he goes, but that's not their real names, is it? By no. the way, I, yeah. I I could not follow this when it happened. I was trying to understand what was going on, and I did not. So I am as on the edge of my seat as anyone else, <laughs> hoping that you will explain to me what happened here. Okay, so basically what's happening here is he, he's finally piecing together what we kind of know based on, you know, the, the very illogical steps that this story is taking. Um, yeah. This is where mystery novels that aren't very good just kick up a lot of dust and hope you don't recognize that they're not smarter than you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, he's putting Dana on trial here, or on, on the, the witness stand, to on give testimony stand, yeah. to say, wasn't my obsession with the Merlots correct in that Kathy Merlot wasn't actually Kathy Merlot? Was she? No, that wasn't her real name. Why wasn't it her real name? Well, Kathy Merlot... Um, was uh, in witness protection, and she was being sought over by the FBI. I lived only a few doors down because um, I was keeping eyes on her because uh, there was this whole other story that we, the reader slash viewer, aren't aware of that there was a hitman, yes, the very hitman that was chasing Paul, was out to kill all of the witnesses 
um, that were in witness protection. There was a big data breach. All of their names and addresses got out, and uh, <laughs> Kathy Merlot was in danger. That's why Dana was there. And this witness, as it was turned out, uh, lived at 63 whatever road that the Vegas yeah, lived on. Well, it, was, it was some number 63, but, but the Vegas... The, lived at 61, one yes. door over, and that the hit that went out was actually meant for Kathy Merlot, but took out Melanie Vega instead. Just just total random happenstance. Like, what a clerical error is why this whole Basically. thing happened. Yes. yes. And so then Paul uh, says, well, Kathy Merlot, is she still dead? And this is where he's really cinching this, uh, this issue with Dana. And she goes... No, I was in Jamaica. I saw that they were dead, but uh, their finger uh, basically gets her to admit that big bloodbath that we saw in Jamaica wasn't real. It was uh, all put on by the the FBI. Um, I, I should also point out that, like, during this entire line of questioning, at first the judge is like, "What the fuck are you doing here?" And he's just like, "Give me a couple minutes, judge." And the judge is like, "All right, fine." And then the judge doesn't give a peep for the rest of this <laughs> <Nope>. very long <laughs> situation. And so Paul just basically goes, they weren't dead in 1988, and they and this is all ties into the fingerprints that uh, Clem, you know, the information he got from Clem in the the car, the diner cop. Um, it, it's listen, it's messy. I know it doesn't make sense when I'm explaining to it. It makes even less sense when you're watching the damn thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, I still don't quite get it, but whatever. Okay, bullet points. Kathy Merlot was a witness for a case that the FBI was watching, okay? There was a data breach in that witness protection information that got out, and the guy that they were all uh, testifying against sent this hitman to go kill the people that testified against him. So one by one, this hitman was killing people. The Merlots were next. Yeah, I, I, yeah, no, I mean, I get all that. I just don't understand how Brian Dennehy figured it out or why Gene Smart standing in a place at a time revealed all this to him. But it's, it's really fine. I actually, I actually don't need to understand it. Yeah, the reason why is that there's 15 minutes left in this thing. Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, so basically the point that Paul comes to is that Laurel couldn't have killed Melanie because this hitman killed her for this whole other reason. Therefore, this whole trial is a mistrial that uh, we're all predicated on things that don't exist. And the judge is right. Uh, yeah, you're right. Okay. I don't need to think about this at all. Based on the yeah. evidence that you are, this testimony that you're giving, I don't need to see any further evidence. I'm going to call this a mistrial. Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Laurel Vega, you're free to go. It's not just, like, it's a mistrial plus an acquittal. So it's not just, this is a mistrial, we'll do another trial to see if she's actually guilty or not. It's just like, no, this trial's totally fucked up, and she's innocent. Just, like, just kind <laughs> yep. of a two-for-one, you know, special. Save everybody some time. Oh, God. Outside, um, right after all of this, uh, Laurel hugging him and thanking him, uh, Dana stops Paul, and Paul's like, save it! <laughs> Like, yeah. he, he's angry at her all of a sudden. He's in yelling, I want to go to Jamaica mode at her. Yes, and, yes. And uh, she's like, I want to talk to you. And she tries to get him to believe her, uh, believe her that, you know, what was between them was real. Mm -hmm. All this other stuff, yeah, I might have lied to you. I might have, you know, gone through some hoops to protect a person in witness protection. But my love for you, that's true. That's true. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, the, the, the me relentlessly throwing myself at you, that is just representative of my actual feelings. That is yeah. not a put-on. Um, and there's yeah. the scene that I mentioned uh, when they were talking in, at midnight at the t- uh, the table, drinking the wine, uh, where she says that they pinned the hitman talking to Jack. Um, Paul brings that back up here and goes, this is why he's so mad. He's like, Jack was innocent. And you would have framed him for murder to keep your secret. <laughs> yeah. And to me, I'm like, Jack is a corrupt senator, and maybe, yeah, he shouldn't be, you know, framed for murder, but, like, she has a bigger game to play here, Paul, <laughs> yeah, than, like, it, like, she's trying to keep multiple witnesses and witness protection safe. Yeah, that it's like making her out to be some kind of mustache-twirling villain when really it seems like, yeah, she just had to make hard choices to do her job to, like, protect people who made a deal with the government to endanger their lives in order yeah. to put pr- criminals in prison. Like, just not, like, she's not deserving of that. And you wrecked her career. You destroyed <laughs> her career in there. And still, uh, to, to to Dana's heart, she says, I, I want us. You just don't understand. And Paul is like, yeah, I understand. I'm in love with you. I, God help me, I'm in love with you. I just don't like you very much. And then walks Oof. off. <laughs> we, the, and I feel like we probably could have just like, we, we cut to this dinner where they're all, uh, Paul's having dinner with Laurel and Danny and Sarah. It's a scene it's a from scene. an Italian restaurant. <laughs> And I feel because like they we, order could, cannoli. we could have just had this moment and, uh, you know, happy moment, credits roll, whatever. I, the loose ends here, like, I don't give a shit, whatever. But yeah. that's not exactly what happens. Um, Laurel asks, when did you figure it all out? And uh, Paul says, well, I figured if they faked their death in 1988, they could have done it again. <laughs> As if that makes any sense. Um, sure, why not? <laughs> And Every, everybody's everybody's super drunk off wine, and they just ate a massive yeah. Italian dinner. No one can really process this. It make it makes sense. It sounds it makes, good. It makes sense. And I, I know we're kind of long in the tooth here, but uh, Paul starts talking about this cannoli, and Sarah's like, I, "I'm I'm full. I I am a normal human growing girl. I've already eaten too much. I don't want a cannoli, Dad." And Paul is like, and given the worst fatherly advice of the movie, he's like. I bet you can get one more bite inside you. (sighs) (laughs) My parents did that. My parents would do that shit sometimes. And I was, it was very much like, well, we want to, we want to have a little bit of dessert and we can count on the kid to eat the rest of it and be like, no guys, I'm really full. Like, no, you could do it. You can do it. It's like, bitch, stop. It's upsetting. I, there's a time in New York I felt oh, very, man. very ill because they had to they had to order cheesecake, even though I protested that I was not. Okay, well, anyway, we're getting we're getting into different stuff now. Different but yes, stuff. I was upset let's, by this. Let's go into this uh, epilogue, which is a movie in and of itself. Um, they're outside, and uh, they all. Uh, okay, Sarah asks if Danny can drive him home on his motorbike. A 15-year-old driving a 7-year-old on his motorcycle, and all Paul wants to know is, do you have an extra helmet? It could be, listen, it could be a 78-year-old, well, actually, that would even be worse. It could be a 35-year-old driving her home on a motorcycle, and it would still be ridiculously unsafe. Like, there's, and the, the, mo- the motorcycle is the biggest uh, safety breach here. 
not I don't even think so because as we'll learn at the end of this we'll just put a pin in it because I'm going to bring it back up in a moment once we get to one last revelation of this movie um so they take off on the motorbike. Uh, Laurel says, I owe you big time. He says, wait till you get the bill. And I'm like, really? what? What's... <laughs> I know it's a joke, but like, holy shit, Paul. Uh, not the time. And um, Paul starts to walk down a dark alley to his car. And as soon as he gets there, he's trying to, he's fiddling with the keys. And all of a sudden, bang, 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 bang. His, his <laughs> driver's side window just shatters from gun bullets. Someone hates this window. <laughs> we forgot uh, about the hitman. We didn't wrap up that plot line. No, but but then we recognize him from his signature move, not being able to hit Brian Dennehy. <laughs> <laughs> Having the element of surprise and a completely unsuspecting quarry and still yep. not being able to hit him. Also, we we Danny's back and we never even addressed where the fuck he's been this whole time, but yeah. whatever. Um so a red dot is following Paul around. Danny hears the gunshots and, and runs towards them. He's like, oh, my God, what's happening? And uh, Paul just starts running. He, he, yeah, you're right. Worst hitman ever. He runs. Okay, so this takes place, this next scene in the book takes place in a, a subway system or, or perhaps like a museum. I can't remember exactly. Not well, That's a big difference between those two things. So. Well, it's like an abandoned place that's wide open. Which is very in contrast to where are we? I, 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 it's, at first, it I wrote like a costume a, costume shop, uh, like pinata warehouse or something, or like big it's clown a, heads. It's a warehouse of disturbing clown heads, uh, <laughs> you know, giant clown heads. This is this is what you get when you go out for dinner in the clown uh, in the clown district. district. <laughs> yeah, hey, maybe for, maybe for, it's a callback to. <laughs> to catch a uh, to catch a killer, all of these John Wayne Gacy heads just floating True. around. Hey, for, forget about it, Paul. It's Clown Town. Um, <laughs> uh, anyhow, it, it's you don't get a sense of the geography of this place. I don't know how big no. it is. No. Brian Dennehy seems like he's just standing in the middle of the room, but they're all kind of like you know the shadows everywhere. It's very noirish. It, you know, if it was filmed in black and white and in the 1950s, it actually might be kind of a cool location. But um, it's really near, neither here nor there. I think it kind of plays more to Bruce Pittman's uh, um, horror roots than anything. But um, there are faces all around. It's a bit of a cat and a mouse thing. There's light, the shadow. Uh, Paul ducks. There's covering. Danny shows up. The hitman's there. Paul's there. Uh, Danny yells out, Uncle Paul, Uncle Paul. What, what's he even doing? What's his plan? You know I don't he's know. in danger. Oh, God. And uh, so he, he yells out, Uncle Paul, Uncle Paul. And uh, Uncle Paul yells out, Danny, get out of here. And, of course, the hitman takes Danny, gets him on his knees, and he's going to execute him unless uh, Paul comes out. Um, the hitman fires a warning shot to show he means business, and it hits a, a clown right smack between the eyes. The, the hitman hates clowns. That's really the motive here. We thought it was all about Brian Dennehy. All? It's really about, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, he's doing a favor for the world by taking clowns out of circulation. Oh, and then we get a trope that I have complained about in the past. Um, he puts the gun to, to Danny's head. He counts three, two, one, bang. And the and hitman falls over in a very bizarre way. Now, folks... Your co-host, the dumbest man in the world, heard the bang and was like, oh, shit, this made-for-TV movie actually killed 
Patricia Richardson's son. That's insane. And then <laughs> the trope the hitman, got you. The hitman fell over. I'm like, damn it, that trope. Ah. <laughs> but uh, who killed him, Truman? Uh, it was Patricia Richardson killed him. We see Patricia Richardson there holding a revolver. Um, I, you know, I'm sure that Jill has fantasized about a <laughs> similar uh, turn of events with Tim being on the other side of the oh, gun. God. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's her. She's done it. And then we cut to them outside explaining everything to the cops. And let me just tell you, folks. Yeah. Let me just tell you, you get acquitted for double murder, and that night you kill a person, and the cops yeah. don't give you a second look. That's something else. That is being a white lady. <laughs> uh, God. I and and so begins the most asinine culmination of all of these thr- plot threads. So basically Paul gives him the whole story. He starts going on and on and on to just this like beat cop with a notepad. Uh, yeah. so he's like, he tells him the whole story, the story about Jamaica and Melanie and a hitman and the gun. And he's like, I think you'll find he like finishes the story by saying, and I think you'll find that the gun that Laurel used to kill, uh, him was the same gun that killed Melanie, and he she she got it out of the hitman's van. And the new detective on the scene is like just like, whoa, man, you're going way too fast. Like, I just arrived here, you know? What the fuck are yeah. you talking about, Jamaica? Like, let's just go down to the station and give me the fucking story beat by beat. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really... <laughs> I don't know. This guy's like, yeah, I, I, I'm look, dude. I'm still pretty fucked up from the fact that there was a massive bombing in this town recently. Like, I'm actually <laughs> right. up to my, I'm up to my knees in case files and traumatized victims from that. So, can you just slow down a little bit with this very complicated explanation that might be half lies? And then uh, after that, we don't go down to the station, which is where it would logically make sense to end the story. No, we have Paul driving Laurel home. Uh. And okay, geez, okay. And she's she's also explaining. She's extra breath for this. Yeah, you t- you take a breath. It should also be noted that that Laurel has explained to a cop in that same scene. Oh yeah, I was walking back to my car and I saw like I was running away from the shots and then I saw this van there that was the hitman's van and there was this revolver sitting on the seat in the van. So I took the revolver and used it to shoot the hit. But just like all of this stuff, just all of these leaps and bounds and if any investigator is worth their grit they're gonna be like this story smells like shit i i i we do not live next to a farm that has bulls but holy cow do i smell bullshit (laughs) there is a lot of bullshit being shoveled around here but nope we don't get any of that uh which is just a very convenient you know way to get us to the end of this thing uh which i want to do me too (sighs) oh Paul drives Laurel home, and this is where we tie up the rest of the threads. Um, yes, in the front seat of the car, <laughs> the, cr- the credits looming on the horizon. He allows uh, Sarah and and Danny to go inside by themselves. Another point I want to put a, a, a pin in for just a few seconds in the future when we get this last revelation. Um, Paul is going to talk to Laurel in the car. She just killed someone, by the way. Mm-hmm. No, yes. <laughs> no, no, it's one of those things where it's just like, it takes no emotional toll on the character that they just killed someone. <laughs> well, when, when you when you kill a hitman, it doesn't count. Like, yeah. killing someone oh, whose job okay. is to kill people, it's like, that's a freebie. That's and also, it's, it's in the Constitution. 
you know, no qualms whatsoever about, like, she killed a hitman that was about to kill her son. And, yeah, Danny, just go inside for a second. I, you know, you, I, I trust you to be alone for a moment. I, I don't have any emotional baggage about leaving you alone. You might not get killed by anything. Yeah, whatever. And, and 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 we and I have not we've not we're not about to learn anything about your emotional state otherwise. <sighs> right. So, okay. So she starts by saying, "Oh, I love seeing them together again. It's like they're siblings." And then Laurel asks, "Um, so how did you know that that was the same gun that killed Melanie?" And uh Paul, <laughs> uh, cuz she knows that it, you know, it wasn't from the Hitman's van. It's not not the gun that was from the Hitman's van. She had it on her, I guess. Yes. What? I guess. It a question. Question mark? I, I, I guess, but also it, it, it's like, it how was the she same, have it? It was the how same gun. How would she gun. have it on her, though, if she came from Cork? Okay, right. The Cork okay. was just like, here, just, we'll just the, give you back the murder weapon. Give you back the murder weapon. One. Two. Have it on you still uh, to kill the hitman. It wasn't the hitman's gun. It was Laurel's gun, I guess. Three. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not. We'll learn whose gun it was in a second. Three. I just killed someone with it for real this time. Four. The cops did not take the gun that killed the hitman away from her after she killed him. She, or did they? I don't. I don't fucking know. Okay. Holy cow. Too many things. This is so messy. Oh. She yeah, asks it's him. A lot. How do you know that that was the gun that killed Melanie? And Paul suddenly has a revelation. He's like, hmm, you know what? I seem to remember that uh, three punks from <laughs> chapter one. <laughs> street urchins. That, uh, that approached me looking for Danny said that they had something of hers. And I knew, of course, it was a gun. How, how the fuck did you know, of course, it was a gun? Did, did um, he like, he, I could see it in their eyes. They were missing the gun that they'd loaned him. Yeah, they lent it to da- Danny and they wanted it back. And uh, he knew that uh, Danny killed Melanie with it. And he's, you know, if, if, oh God, okay. Basically, we find out. Danny killed Melanie. Yes. That's the conclusion that Paul has come to. But he doesn't know exactly why. And, And, yeah. And Patricia Richardson explains to him that Melanie, I guess was completely insane and seduced Danny oh, and man, they had this, this, <laughs> this weird moment. weird psychosexual relationship that we see in flashbacks a lot of her like looking at the camera and going Danny, Danny. and then like shots of like hands running across the bare skin of someone's back very gratuitous like, there's a lot of licking and spider-man kisses oh you know two faces upside <laughs> spider-man down spider-man kisses <laughs> that's great that's the best word for it spider-man kisses <laughs> um yeah but yeah so that they they were into it and like and she's very much put it like and he just i don't know he was confused and she manipulated him and maybe like he felt good about the conquest or something it's like and it's just like all all, all of this is I, I wouldn't object to this being the reason, but like there was nothing about this no. in the uh, this is a three this is three hours of this content that we've had to absorb. <laughs> Two hours and fifty eight minutes of it is not about the fact that this dude was having sex with his dad's yeah. new wife. And so Danny got the gun because after he found out that she was pregnant, he wanted to kill himself. He couldn't endure the situation with Melanie anymore. This psychosexual situation, living in the he, same he would, house he, as them. 
he'd been trying to break it off, but she was insisting on she wouldn't let him. This is the whole yeah. reason Laurel and Danny both didn't want Danny living with the Vegas because he would have to be in that situation and lead him closer to suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So he took the gun over there and uh, he wanted to kill himself in front of her, I guess, to show this is what you've driven me to. And Mel, uh, that kill himself in front of Melanie, that is. And Melanie uh, s- sees him put the gun to his hand uh, head and tries to stop him and says no. And the gun went off and accidentally shot her. Square yeah. between the eyes, apparently. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as her, as her. one does. So so this teenager accidentally fumbling with a gun is a better shot than the trained hitman <laughs> whose whole job is to shoot people. Like he he has more accuracy in a yep. state of like emotional distress. I I don't know. I, no, you're right. Ev- so everyone who hired that hitman needs to get their money back. There needs to be a rebate, <laughs> a factory recall. Danny in his big boots got um, blood all over the rug that was from the bathroom. So there was physical evidence uh, on that rug that uh, that Laurel was bleaching. So he took the rug and ran. And and, well, um, and, you, and you know how it is when you're, you know, you've been so mixed up in the head that you almost kill yourself. You then accidentally wind up shooting your lover. You're in a really, like, present state of mind. And you can, <laughs> yep. like, look down and think, like, oh... I've left boot prints in the blood on the bath mat. This is evidence that the prosecution will use against me. I should take this with me before I flee the scene of my my horrible crime. Like, you, yeah. you think about those things. So Laurel and Paul are comparing their stories and filling in each other's gaps. Paul knew that, uh, that Danny was the father. Uh, and yes. Laurel asks how. And he's like, well, there's, uh, you know, Jack had a vasectomy. There's only one other person whose DNA would be consistent. Uh, with the babies. Uh, if it wasn't Jack, it would be Jack's kid. And Laurel's filling in the suicide side of things, but then she also fills in why she was doing this. You know, this whole whole thing is, to, you know, give the explanation as to why she was acting the way she was acting, um, the lengths that she was going to to protect her own kid. Uh, and this is where the, like, the moral fortitude of these characters comes in. So, like, they knew a a murder, not a murder, they knew that a death had occurred by shot, you know, um, it it just seems like they went to very unnecessary lengths (laughs) to, to have this whole ordeal unfold when I get you want to protect your kid, like, that's why Laurel was doing this whole thing, and I guess you can't falter for that, but protecting him in the way that you did and Paul acting in the like how does the obsession with Kathy Merlo fit into this whole thing like none of it really makes sense at the end of the day uh, yeah like the, like all this other shit was flying around to like you know just completely like let's just look at all the things that happened in this uh, he completely destroyed a senator's career. He destroyed yep. a deputy U.S. attorney's career, exposed yep. a massive anti-corruption sting targeting the highest levels of the federal government. There was yep. a terrorist attack that presumably traumatized everybody in this town, yep. got the entire murder case thrown out on a mistrial and acquittal, which was a total Hail Mary based on lies. Yep. And all of this to obscure the fact that Patricia Richardson's son was getting psychosexually manipulated and abused by the mistress wife of her new I, uh, and as the dust settles melanie is dead the child of you know the the love child between melanie and danny is dead 
there's nothing here that says Danny's mental state is going to be any better off than it was at the beginning of this thing that she no. was trying to protect, you know, uh, to begin with. And at no point has Danny, like, when they're all eating dinner together at the Italian restaurant, Danny's just like, oh, yeah, this is great. I'm so glad my mom's out of jail. Like, there's no sign at any point in this, any of the Danny scenes, that he's feeling guilt over the fact that his mom nope. is taking the fall for him. No sign of the fact that he is... um dealing with trauma from what's happened to him. <laughs> nope. He just seems like all. a normal kid with a motorcycle, a normal cool dude. And so, and because of all of this emotional state that Paul knows, and Paul knows that he's killed Melanie, Paul knows, okay, he's still allowed Danny, this emotionally reckless teenager, <laughs> to take his daughter out on a motorcycle and then go inside this house with her um, at the end of the story. And Sarah comes out and goes, uh, she interrupts uh, Laurel and Paul and goes, Danny's so cool. Look what he gave me, a, a, a pair of sunglasses. And uh, <laughs> Paul's just like. A pair of wraparound sunglasses. <laughs> Paul's like, Danny, you're right. Danny's cool when he's family and we love him. And uh, basically he tells Laurel at this point, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do what's best for Danny. Um, he's going to take Sarah home and he's going to think it over. Sarah gets in the car, Laura gets out, Sarah puts on the sunglasses, and basically they drive off and leave Laurel on the sidewalk with no real indication as to what or not Paul is going to do. They're just going to li live with this unspoken trauma in their lives. Like, are they ever going to mention it? At, at And they don't even have blood relation anymore. Like, he's no. he, he his over-sense of obligation, overdeveloped sense of obligation to Nikki's deathbed promise has been fulfilled. He never has to speak to Laurel again. Yeah, but and probably shouldn't after this, honestly. <laughs> the, woman, the woman is going to get in trouble with the law again. Look at how she conducts herself. That's undue influence too, where he has to <laughs> go into a second trial uh, uh, defense against uh, or for Laurel um, in defense of this uh, this act here, and yeah, then that, it's that's... gonna the whole the whole suicide story is gonna come up uh, in that defense. Uh, yeah, there. Again, I can't stress enough how boring long stretches of this thing were and it, the whole time this was simmering underneath the surface but they didn't want to tell us until the last two minutes of the thing it's <laughs> and and again it's really oh. like it really all just resolves on like danny's pretty cool he gave my daughter sunglasses i think we can let this slide <sighs> i gotta say the sunglasses didn't factor into the book it's a whole really? thing contrived for the movie See, this is what this is the advantage to adapting something for the screen is that you get new things out of it. You know, when you let yep. uh, another artist adapt a beloved tale like Undue Influence, you get kind of a new perspective that you can only get through <laughs> a pair of totally awesome wraparound shades. Truman, that's been Undue Influence. Um, do you have any final thoughts? <sighs> I wish I could undo the influence that this has had over my life. No, um, final <laughs> thoughts. Uh, y y yeah, you know, final thoughts. I guess this entertained some people in the late 90s. I think some people watched this and were happy. And I again, I think that this was really a big coup for Patricia Richardson's agent for getting her second billing in this thing that she was really not in that much. <laughs> but I honestly think, I honestly think there... 
the big problem with this is that Brian Dennehy's character is the least interesting character. I would much rather either a drama about Patricia Richardson's character yeah. being in jail and dealing with the weight of what she knows in her relationship with her son, or a story focusing on Danny and the fact that he's a victim of abuse and all the weird stuff that has gone on and his feelings. <laughs> like, there are, yeah, there are people who have... <laughs> there are more interesting stories that need to be told in this story that they focused on, yeah. Yeah, like the the whole Brian Dennehy being sad about his wife dying. It's like, yeah, that's sad, but like, there's a lot of other trauma in this story that's a little more interesting <laughs> on screen. Oh um, uh, well. Um, yeah. What about I don't you, have, Brandon? I don't. I feel the same as I went into it, which is just like I knew what the entry fee was. I knew what the what what costs I'd be paying, and you know what? In a year, I'm gonna forget ninety nine percent. I, the only thing I'll remember is Brian Dennehy lumbering away from a hitman. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. The only thing I'm going to remember is Gene Smart whispering yes. Yes, yes, or, yes. Or Melanie going, Danny. God, uh, we know where your mind's at. Um, last, uh, th- okay, well, then I'll finish this by saying that, that's been Undue Influence. Thank, thank you guys if you're still with us. I, I don't know. I wish I had the analytics to see if people drop off halfway through the episode. <laughs> um, if you had the analytics to see if people uh, people drop off as soon as I started whispering yes, yeesh. Uh, we are going into our mid season break, so um, Woo, we'll be back at the probably the end of May. We'll keep you updated in our newsletter and on our various uh, social media channels. Um, there might be another bonus episode. Uh, unfortunately, as per our text messaging back and forth, it's not going to be Leprechaun 4, which came out in 1996 at the same time as Undue Influence, starring Debbie Dunny. Well, I could, Leprechaun I could 4 in space. <laughs> I could be convinced, Landon. I didn't say no. I just I just asked some, some probing questions that you didn't like. <laughs> well, uh, I will say in 78 minutes... Uh, Debbie Dunning has the same amount of screen time as Patricia Richardson does in four hours. So okay, so, so I'm still spending <laughs> less time out of my life to see very little of someone on Home Improvement. It's a lot more entertaining. I will watch Leprechaun Four in space at any time, any day, any hour. Yeah, okay, all right, all right. Well, maybe we well well maybe we'll cover it, and maybe maybe you, the audience, will want to listen to it too. It's either that or we cover. Um, uh, Tara Noah Smith in the Christmas movie, also starring Suzanne, not Suzanne Collins, uh, Joan Collins, I think it is, um, which I'm sure he uh, has all of maybe two lines in. So they they need they they just they needed to, they, uh, the biggest the biggest sin of the late '90s was that the Home Improvement cast Susan were not Lucci. being given media enough roles. Yeah, Susan <laughs> Lucci, of course. Uh, it's sometimes called a miracle at Christmas, or it's sometimes called Ebby, E-B-B-I-E. Hmm. hmm. Well, that's the, I, d- I, d- I don't that's know what the, to do with that. I, that's the right I, reaction. I have, I, have no, I have no reaction to that whatsoever. Um, well, folks, thank you for sitting with us through this. Um, yeah. And um, we will be back after the break better than ever, maybe? <laughs> nope. I'm not making Possibly. that promise. I'm, yeah, I'm not. I'm not improving anything over the break. <laughs> All right, grunt work is made possible by our Patreons. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to help us create this show, consider becoming an official Grunthead sponsor over at Patreon.com/GruntworkPod. Uh, since you're paying us, we'll also take recommendations to not do things. 
So if you <laughs> if you don't want things like this, you can also pay us for that. If, uh, if there's words you don't want to hear whispered, <laughs> let us know. Leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts because it's the easiest, fastest way to get people to find our show. Stop by to say hi to us on Twitter or Instagram at GruntWorkPod or visit our website, which is www.gruntworkpodcast.com where you can see other information about today's episode and sign up for our weekly newsletter to be notified whenever a new episode is released. Until we see you next time, whenever that might be, I've been Landon Solano. I've been Truman Caps. And remember, when you're considering a vacation, someplace to get away, why not think about Jamaica? Especially if you are trying to get away from the undue influence of being targeted by an assassin because of a... It's, folks, it's like 100 degrees in my room right now, and I didn't have a thing planned for this, so we're just going to fade out on that. Thank you.